As I suggested in the last lecture, we're going to have the next two sessions, we're going to be dealing with the U.S. Steel Annual Report. And remember I told you that if it was a good year, we'd have a good-looking report, and here it is. Uh, all in color throughout. And anytime you see a report in color, that means things were pretty good because management didn't feel the need to economize. Now, the purpose of these next two sessions will be to take a look at an annual report in much greater detail than we've discussed it to date. We're interested in seeing, first of all, how much precision can you expect in an annual report? Secondly, we'd like to know just how much discretion does management have in reporting the data that is shown to the shareholders? Not how much can you believe of it, but rather what range of values might actually apply. If a, if a company says it earns a dollar a share, does that mean it earns a dollar plus or minus a penny, or does it mean it earns somewhere between minus two dollars and plus five dollars? This report, as I suggested, is a model of full disclosure. It's probably one of the best reports you'll ever find in, in terms of trying to help the shareholders understand what was going on. Don't expect to get this good a result from every annual report you see because not all, all officers feel the need to tell their shareholders quite as much as U.S. Steel chose to tell them. You have an extract of this report as an appendix to your lesson, and it numbered pages 1 through 10, and we'll be referring to it that way. You'll also discover that the report is annotated with circled numbers, and we'll be referring to those. And the circled numbers may appear with more than one location in the report, so that we can refer back to a footnote that also talks about the same subject we're already looking at. A little more background. Remember, U.S. Steel was the largest steel company in the world at, in 1972 when this report was prepared. It had had a couple years prior to this where things weren't great, but they were okay. They did know that 1973 was going to be a great year. That is, the year after this was to be a great year. And the reason they knew this was that they had orders on the books. Remember, they get their orders as much as 18 months in advance. So anything that they would do that might move earnings from 73 back to 72 would be an okay thing because 73 was going to be fantastic anyway. And we'll discover that it is possible to move earnings back and forth within a year or so without too much problem. The past two years, as I suggested, had not been great. However, they weren't bad. This year, we want to make it better. And in the 73, it's going to be better no matter what. A couple other ideas. Wall Street does not like uneven earnings growth. In other words, given the choice between earnings that grow, if we look at sales or earnings versus time, earnings that grow like this and earnings that grow like this, even though the result is the same, Wall Street prefers the straight line. If nothing else, because the young analysts who work there are MBAs and their math doesn't permit them to deal with much better than straight lines. So typically, uh, straight lines are what they like to project. And, and if you look at Wall Street reports where they project earnings, they generally just, just do it by saying it's going to be X percent more than the previous year. And so it behooves management to report not only earnings growth, but smooth earnings growth which is a way of saying management is doing the shareholders a favor when they smooth earnings. The favor is that they don't surprise the Wall Street guys who get all upset if earnings don't come in exactly to the penny. If you need proof of this, take a look at what happens on a given day if somebody reports earnings a penny less than Wall Street expected they were going to be. In general, you can expect the stock to drop 10 or 15 percent on 
a one-penny change from expectations. Well, what does constitute good results? Obviously, we want earnings to go up. We'd like them to move up smoothly. We don't want to give any bad news or unexpected news. And the other thing we should know is that a dividend cut is received very badly by Wall Street. Once a company establishes a dividend, the, the Wall Street people expect it, the investors expect that dividend to be maintained or raised. To cut a dividend is an admission that something is wrong, and that means it needs an explanation. And whatever explanation you give as an officer, you can bet it's not going to be satisfactory to the street or to your investors. So that's what we're looking for when we look for good results. And what we're going to do now is play detective. We're going to do what sometimes is called forensic accounting. We're going to see what we can discover in an annual report that would help explain what was going on better than simply reading the report the way an amateur might do it, which is the first page was slick, therefore business is good. The second page tells me everything I need to know, that is that earnings were up. Well, let's see why we should look deeper at an annual report. The first question I ask you is, what happened to sales? If you look at the first page of the appendix, at the very top, you'll see that the, earning, or the sales for U.S. Steel for the year were up some 9 and a fraction percent, from about uh, $4.9 billion to $5.4 billion. On the face of it, that's very good. In fact, it's better than good because a 10% or a 9% increase in sales is much greater than the economy typically grows in a year. In an economy as mature as the United States, 2 or 3% annual growth is typical. Now, steel business is tied to the economy, so if the economy grows at 2 or 3% a year, then that's what we would expect for long-run growth in the steel business. However, they did better than that this year. Earnings were, our sales were up 9%. The next question I ask you is, what would you expect would happen to earnings? Well, I think we're convinced that U.S. Steel is indeed a capital-intensive business. If you weren't fully convinced, you could turn to the second page of your appendix where you would find the balance sheet or statement of condition for U.S. Steel, and you would discover that U.S. Steel had on its books net plant and equipment amounting to something in the order of... Uh, $4.1 billion. Out of total assets of about 6 or $7 billion, that means that something better than 60% of all their assets were invested in plant and equipment. So indeed, this is a capital-intensive business. Now remember what we know about capital-intensive businesses. They have high fixed costs relating to depreciation charges. They also typically have high fixed costs relating to interest expenses because this kind of asset can be financed with long-term debt. We'll confirm later that U.S. Steel indeed uses a great deal of long-term debt. With both financial leverage because of the interest cost and operational leverage because of the depreciation cost, we expect that when sales go up, earnings should go up more on a percentage basis than sales. Remember, we saw that in an earlier session. With leverage, earnings should do very well in good years. And remember, it cuts the other way in bad years. When earnings are good or sales are good, earnings are great. When sales are bad, earnings stink. Well, indeed, sales were quite good. They were up 9.4%. So our expectation is that earnings for the year should have risen something better than 9%. Well, if you look at the income statement, again, on the first page of the appendix, 
you'll discover that income increased from 154 million to 156 million. That's about two-thirds of the way down page one. That's only a one and a fraction percent increase in earnings for a nine percent increase in sales. That should alert you to the possibility that things are not quite what they seem to be. That is, that things weren't as good as you would have expected, and it needs an explanation. The second question I ask you is what, or third question rather, is what should happen to the dividend if earnings are up or down? Well, earnings were up, admittedly not that much, but they were up for the year. The dividend is also reported at the next to the bottom line of page two of your, or page one of your exhibit. Dividends were cut from 97.5 million down to 86.7 million dollars for the year. So sales were up 9%, earnings were only up one and a fraction percent, a surprise, and with earnings up, the dividend was cut. A very big surprise, and one that you can bet did not please Wall Street. Companies don't like to cut their dividend, so there must have been a very good reason for U.S. Steel to cut its dividend. Given that information, I think it's probable that we ought to take a hard look at the annual report to see what we can learn as detectives from a very well-reported report. Peace and love, family. Peace and love. Those of you that are tuning in, you're in the middle of actually accounting training and also notary training. What I want to do is I want to bring your attention to what we are discussing as far as forensic accounting. Um, we're dealing with financial reports. 90% of what I do, besides bringing you this content and myself being a student myself and trustee training, is that um, we're constantly talking in, um, around the fact of how important accounting is. We're doing a bit of investigative work in this example. So you want to see what's actually under the hood. How did we get here? How many of you guys actually realized that in about a week we'll actually be officially at the end of most of the individual's accounting physical year? In other words, the business year has actually already wound up. October 31st, to be exact, will be the last day of fiscal business. We'll be moving into 2021. How many individuals actually really know that? Like, I know everyone doesn't look at accounting the way I look at it. So, you know, this weekend I did everything but work, if that makes sense to you. I kind of looked at a lot of other things, but most of it was family-oriented. And the accounting was at the top of it because you have to take inventory of everything that has happened over the course of the fiscal year and now you got to repair these annual reports these financial reports uh and so a lot of individuals are looking at their financial situation differently i do know from just observation most civilians have not really ascertained the idea of just what 2020 means academically as well as financially which um, when you understand that the financial condition of an entity determines whether the street and we're talking about Wall Street is acceptable or non-acceptable plays a, a hand in how it plays in your economy 
because 90% of those that are listening to my voice, most of you guys are civilians and or consumers, and you have a connotative concept of true net asset value and money valuation. And that's not a bad thing. That just simply means that you are deficient of certain information that is pertinent to the rules of credits and debits. So therefore, your inability to effectively assess the situation can actually become an, a tool of exploitation for those that are looking to uh, exploit that information, uh, extort that information, if you will, ex exploit and extort the estate because of your failure to be in compliance with Uniform Commercial Code and generally accounting accepting principles. Also, the Financial Accounting Standard Board has passed a new implementation rule called Current Expected Credit Loss Provisions. And if you're not using these provisions in order for you to really understand what you're dealing with, then chances are you're going to be swinging left and right in the dark and hitting nothing. This is the world upon which we live in. This is the world upon which I try so desperately to bring or sound the alarm for everyone to look at things from a denotative concept versus a connotative concept. You spend 90% of the time trying to not convince a person, because I can't convince you of anything. Uh, you spend 90% of the time disproving any positive statements that are being made because they haven't been substantiated with math. For example, a lot of individuals will look at their financial situation and say, well, this was a great year because I made more money this year than I made last year. Not realizing that that positive statement may have inflammatory results because of hyperinflation. You know, you might have were paid more revenue, quote unquote, not income, revenue. You might have was given more revenue because the cost of living increased so if the things around you cost three times as much and your income only increased two times you're still at a deficit and that's what a lot of people don't really get in it's only when you start doing accounting meaning that you're taking the, the forensic accounting approach the three-way reconciliation um, um, proponent where you really get to see this stuff live out in your day-to-day um, transactions but keep listening because if you listen long enough you definitely will learn something there's one other test we can put it to that I suggest and that is let's check the tax rate you know companies adhere to Ben Franklin's advice of paying minimum taxes but at the same time they generally do pay their taxes uh, unlike certain individuals well let's see what happened to taxes that year uh, given some 200 million, almost $201 million in earnings, that's about halfway down the, the income statement on page one for the year, uh, tax rates were at that time something in excess of 50%. We would have expected them to pay something in the order of 100 to $105 million in taxes for the year. In fact, they reported that they paid $44 million. In other words, an effective tax rate on $44 million on $200 million is about 22%. Now, that in itself should lead you to ask some questions. Given that the standard tax rate was at the time was over 50%, how did they manage to pay a 22% tax rate? Something had to be going on other than it was a great year and nothing to worry about. And so what we're going to try to do is figure out just what was going on and 
what might the earnings have been. Now, I know it's boring, but it's also a good idea when you pick up an annual report to read the auditor's report. You'll find that on the very last page, I'm sorry, two pages back on your exhibit, the standard auditor's report, in this case from Pricewaterhouse, one of the most prestigious of the major public accounting firms, and if you read the verbiage, what it tells you basically is we took the data management gave us, we checked it using the tests that we regard as necessary. That meant they sent out and asked for confirmations on, on receivables. They actually sampled inventories. They did all sorts of things to convince themselves that these figures that we're looking at here truly represent the condition of U.S. Steel at the end of 1972 and truly represent what U.S. Steel accomplished during 1972 in terms of sales and earnings with no reservations. In fact, the official words are, in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles, consistently applied. Remember, accountants love consistency, although there are those who say that consistency is the hobgoblin of mediocre minds. This is what we call a clean opinion. Pricewaterhouse took no exceptions to anything in the report, which means that we can have some faith in what we see. In fact, perhaps a lot of faith. But in order to have full faith, we have to read more than the first page of numbers that said earnings were up. We have to read the footnotes of all things, including the footnotes that are in the smallest type, the ones that Mr. Gottrocks was not expected to look at. Okay, with that in mind, let's see what we can learn by looking at the annual reports of U.S. Steel. The first thing I'd like you to look at is the tax result again. That's circle number one on page two. Or, I'm sorry, page one, the income statement. Remember we discovered they paid $44 million in taxes for the year on $200 million of pre-tax income, and that we thought that was unusual because that's only a 22% tax rate. So our job is to leaf back through the annual report and see if we can find an explanation. And indeed, you will find it if you go to circle number one in footnote one, footnote 11 rather, pages seven and eight. If you go back to page seven and eight in your statement, your appendix, and look at footnote number 11, pages seven and eight, Management explains why taxes were not as high this year as you might otherwise expect it. What they tell us is that they repatriated earnings from overseas. Now you understand a company as big as U.S. Steel earns money not only in the United States, it earns it in other countries. When they bring those earnings back to the United States, there are taxes due on them. However, they then get a tax credit for any taxes they paid overseas. So let's suppose we were operating in Afghanistan and they had a 10% income tax. If we earned $10 million in Afghanistan, we'd pay $1 million in ta taxes to the Afghani government. When we rep repatriate the $10 million in earnings to the United States, there's a 53% tax due on it, on it. Therefore, we'd owe $53 million to the U.S., but we could subtract a million dollars out of it, or I'm sorry, $5.3 million to the U.S. We could subtract a million out of it because we already gave the Afghanis a million as a tax credit that would reduce our taxes. Now, it probably will occur to you, hey, this is a great way to park future tax credits and use them when we need them. In a year when we'd like to report increased earnings, wouldn't it be great if we could repatriate earnings from over, that we had made overseas in the past, bring them home, and take a tax credit for the stuff that we've already paid, the taxes we've already paid to the Afghan government or the British government or whatever? 
And indeed, that's what U.S. Steel did this year. They repatriated earnings, and they got a tax credit that saved them about $15 million, they report, on their U.S. taxes. Another way of saying that is that although they reported earnings of $157 million, reported on the income statement, that in reality, had they not repa repatriated those earnings, earnings would have been not $157 million as reported, but 157 minus the 15 million of, of repatriated tax credit, or only 142 million. Not a big change, but we'll discover there are several other changes that we'll have to make. In fact, we're going to have to make a number of other adjustments to earnings to actually approximate what U.S. Steel's results may have been for the year. I should warn you that all the future adjustments we make will have to be on an after-tax basis. You see, the tax credit came directly out of taxes and therefore went straight to earnings. We'll assume that they're in a the 50% tax bracket just to make things simple. So any adjustment we make, we'll take 50% of it down to the bottom line. If we save some money, that is, don't spend some money, that's 50% more profit. If uh, we report some sales that result in profits, then 50% of the profit comes to the bottom line. So in each case, then, we'll make a tax adjustment in what, before we make the adjustment to earnings. Now, the next item that I'd like to look at is the item of interest expense. You'll find that as circle number two on page one of your appendix, about halfway down the page. Now, you guys have actually heard him speak in unison about repatriation of earnings. I'm going to take it that everybody that's in this particular training has no idea what repatriation in the world of accounting and in the world of money and investing, uh, what that means. Because repatriation, you know, we hear people talk about, you know, repatriate, redemption. You know, we hear those things only in our space because people come to us with this type of information and it's a form of commingling and they don't understand that words have a connotative and denotative application depending upon how it's being used. Now, if we're talking about the world of accounting, the world of commerce, then these things take on a very distinctive meaning. So what is repatriation in the world of investing? Well, repatriation refers to converting any foreign currency into one's local currency. Repatriation sometimes becomes necessary due to business transactions, foreign investments, and or international travel. Repatriation is a larger context. Repatriation in a larger context, here's where the connotative comes in. Repatriation in the larger context refers to anything or anyone that returns to its country of origin, which can include foreign nationals, refugees, and deportees. Now, here are the key takeaways. Repatriation refers to converting any foreign currency into one's local currency. Repatriation sometimes become necessary due to the business transaction, foreign investments, or international travel. In the corporate world, repatriation usually refers to the conversion of of offshore capital back into currency of the country in which a corporation is based. Repatriation in a larger context refers to anything or anyone that returns to its country of origin, which can include foreign nationals, refugees, and deportees.
See, in the corporate world, repatriation usually refers to the conversion of offshore capital back into a currency of the country in which the corporation is based. In the global economy, many corporations based in the United States generate earnings abroad. However, today's companies choose not to repatriate their offshore earnings to avoid corporate taxes, which can be charged on repatriated funds. Individuals might also repatriate funds. For example, Americans returning from a visit to Japan typically repatriate their currency, converting any remaining yen into United States dollars. The number of dollars they receive when they exchange their remaining yen will depend on the exchange rate between the two currencies at the time of repatriation. It is important to note that some U.S. companies repatriate funds from overseas, translating the cash back to United States dollars. Those funds are typically used for share buybacks, dividends, investments into new technologies, and fixed assets like property, plant, and equipment. What are the risks associated with the repatriation? When companies operate in, a, in more than one country, they generally accept the local currency of the economy that they transact business. For example, though Apple is a U.S.-based country or corporation, an Apple store in France will accept euros as payment for product sales, such as the euro, since the euro is the currency that French consumers transact in and get paid from their employers. See, <clears throat> when a company earns income in foreign currencies, the earnings are subject to foreign exchange risk, meaning that they, they could potentially lose or gain. They could, they could potentially lose or gain in value based on fluctuations in the value of either currency. See, if Apple earns 1 million euros in France from the product sales at the end of the exchange rate, it is $1.15 per euro. The earnings would be 1.1 or a million euros at 1.5. However, if the next quarter Apple values the 1 million euros, but the exchange rate fell to 1.1 instead of 1.15, the earnings would equal 1.11 or 1.11 of, of, of euros at one point. One zero. In other words, Apple would lose 50000 in earnings based on the exchange rate decline, despite having the same amount of sales in euros in both quarters. The volatility of fluctuation in exchange rate is called foreign exchange risk, which companies are exposed to when they do business internationally. As a result, the volatility in exchange rate can impact the company's earnings. This is very important because of the current expected credit loss provisions and those of you that are in the middle of the world's greatest transformation of wealth that's taking place. You're on the cuff of HR 5404. Keep listening because if you listen long enough, you definitely will learn something. You'll notice that interest costs for the year fell from 74 million to 67 million between 1971 
1972. It's nice to pay less interest, and we have to think about why a company would pay less interest. If you think about it, there's really only two reasons, ordinarily. A, we have less debt, out, debt outstanding, so we have less interest to pay debt on. Or B, we managed to refinance debt at lower interest rates, so the debt that was outstanding bearing a lower interest rate would result in lower interest costs. So I suppose we ought to check that and find out if indeed U.S. Steel, first of all, had less debt outstanding at the end of the year. As you know, long-term debt will appear as an item on the balance sheet. And so we need to go to page two. And we'll find on page two the assets and liabilities reported in the British system. And you'll find a circle number two about three-quarters of the way down the page. Long-term debt, it increased from 1.4 to 1.5 billion dollars for the year. In other words, debt increased. If debt increased, interest costs should have gone up. So it, we can't explain the drop in interest costs from the drop in debt. We'll have to do better than that. Well, we said the other possibility was that we had lower interest costs. So perhaps we ought to check that. To do that, you want to take a look at page four and you'll discover about a third of the way down the page in the right-hand margin. Again, there's a circle number two. And what U.S. Steel has done, which is more than most companies will do for you, is to list all of their bonds. And lo and behold, they even have debentures. Remember, we said most corporate bonds are debentures. Uh, and see what actually happened. They tell you what items went up and what items went down for the year. And you'll discover that, for example, the first debenture listed is the 4%. And the number of dollars worth of bonds actually decreased in that category by some $25 million. The next item is a four and a fraction percent. It also went down. On the other hand, the next item is a seven percent bond, and it didn't drop. In other words, we were cutting debt slightly, but the bonds that we were cutting were low interest rate bonds. We were paying off low interest rate debt, and the high interest rate debt was still outstanding. If you continue down the list, you'll discover that, in fact, to finance the repurchase or the payoff of the low interest rate debt, we issued additional debt with interest rates all the way up to about 7%. Now, wait a minute. Where are we? We're paying less interest for the year, but we have slightly more debt outstanding. And not only that, the bonds that we have outstanding, for the most part, are carrying higher interest coupons, higher interest rates than the ones we did at the beginning of the year because what we retired were low interest rate bonds. Now, how can we reconcile this? Well, to do that, we have to think a little bit. If we were smart enough 10 years ago, when interest rates were low, to sell a lot of debt, to issue a lot of bonds at 4% interest, we would now have the use of very cheap money at a time when interest rates have gone up to 7 or 8%, which is typically what they're issuing debt at now. Now, having been that smart, we can benefit from our braininess in two ways. We can allow the 4% bonds to remain outstanding and use that debt, paying only 4% to use it. That's one approach. Another approach is to say to ourselves, look, any time that interest rates go up, the value of any bond with a low coupon, like a 4% coupon, is going to go down, because who wants to own a bond that only pays 4%? If nobody wants it, the value is going to fall. And so we've got these 4% bonds that will be selling below par, below their issue price, because nobody's interested in them. 
Well, I'll tell you somebody that's interested in them. We are. Because suppose we were to go out and buy that debt back at the market price. If we issued a bond at a thousand, but remember we say it's a hundred, hundred percent of par. If we issued a bond at a thousand, and it's now down to let's say eighty, in other words, eight hundred dollars on a thousand dollar bond. If we were to repurchase that bond for eight hundred dollars, it would take eight hundred dollars of cash off the asset side of the balance sheet, but it would reduce our debt by a thousand dollars on the liability side of the balance sheet. That means the balance sheet would be unbalanced by $200, but what it really means is we made a $200 profit on the repurchase of our debt, so our equity account would go up by $200. Remember, the shareholders get the benefit of all profits. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Those of you that are in trustee training, those of you that are notaries, you're now at the part of the class where you're supposed to understand how this forensic accounting really works. So let's examine this. See, you're supposed to repurchase debt. Write this down because I know a lot of individuals are hearing this for the first time. What is Bezel talking about repurchasing debt? In the world of economics, debt is money. And if you're simply trying to convert lawful legal money in the fiat, you just dip your toe in the water. You haven't fully conceived the accounting principles. So I'm going to give you one. All smart entities repurchase debt. They repurchase debt. Repurchase debt. And when you repurchase debt and reapply it into your accounting ledger, voila. I can only lead you to water. I can't make you drink it. And just because it works for Bazell doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. Matter of fact, if you've been invited to this particular call and you have no idea what accounting is, I suggest you go to whoever referred you to this for the first time and ask them some hard questions about trustee training because we're simply going over trustee training accounting principles. And if you're under a non-disclosure, then let me put this out here. Each and everything that you hear in this particular broadcast for educational purposes only. We do not profess to give legal advice. Each and everything that you're listening to is for educational purposes only. We do not profess to give legal advice. So if any and everything that you're listening to um, sparks you to move in that particular direction, we ask that you seek out those individuals that have that type of information in order for you to understand that here on WTDTA Radio, we're here to give you information in order for you to apply it correctly. And we're simply talking about accounting and generally accepted accounting principles and concepts. Now that that's out the way, you're supposed to be repurchasing debt. One of the questions that is most highly regarded among trustees is, how do we do this? And you're only asking this because you have come to the realization that it was done a different way. So when you're acting in a creditor's capacities, Consumers create debt. Creditors repurchase debt. Keep listening because if you listen long enough, you just might learn something. Which is a way of saying if we repurchase the debt, we get an immediate profit, in this case of $200. When you repurchase debt, you get an immediate profit. When you repurchase debt, you get an immediate profit. When you repurchase debt, you get an immediate profit. Let's 
examine. Most consumers are waiting for someone else to tell them their position in accounting. Creditors set the tone. So they do the accounting in such a way that the profits and liabilities and assets are not detrimental. It doesn't cripple the company. It strengthens the company. It doesn't pierce the integrity of the trust. It reinforces the trust. This is why those in the private are not arguing about who shot John, Donald Trump this. What about taxes? They don't have that type of conversation. You know why? Because they repurchase debt. Consumers are the only ones that are worrying about what's going on in your wallet, your purse, your pocket. Someone told me this a long time ago. When you're worried about what's in my pocket, you can't even focus on your own. Keep listening because if you listen long enough, you just might learn something. And that indeed is what U.S. Steel did. It repurchased low interest rate debt at a profit. Now see, they had two choices. They could leave the debt outstanding and get, get to use it at cheap interest rates, or they could get an immediate profit by repurchasing it today, this year. They elected to repurchase it this year. And as a result, they paid less interest. Well, they made a profit, which they now tell us they offset against interest. Where do we find that? If we go back to page 8 of your appendix, on the right-hand column, about halfway down, you'll discover again a circle number 2. And here U.S. Steel tells us what they've done. They say that interest and other costs of debt is net of gains of $14 million in 1972, principally on the repurchase of U.S. Steel's debentures. In other words, indeed, they elected to take the profit resulting from being smart enough to issue low interest rate debt at the right time, they elected to take it in 72 rather than permitting the bond to stay outstanding and getting the benefit of low interest rate debt for another X years until the bond matured. As a result, they paid $14 million less in interest this year. At a 50% tax rate, $7 million of that would come down to the bottom line as an after-tax profit increase because it was a saving of $14 million. That being the case, had they not elected to recapture re, uh, that, that profit, they would have reported not $7 million, or $14 million, but $7 million after taxes, and instead of $142 million, perhaps they would have reported a total of $135 million in earnings for the year. Again, not a big item, but there's a lot more of them that we can take a look at, and it's probably worth it because that gives us an opportunity to walk through the annual report. And so now let's look at circle number three on page two, the balance sheet. The item is marketable securities, and you'll notice that they were down by, oh, approximately uh, $26 million for the year. Now, you remember that companies invest in marketable securities principally to earn a little bit of interest rather than having the money lie around earning nothing in the meantime in the cash account. However, at any given time, some of those securities probably have a profit in them, and some of them have a loss. I'll leave it for you to decide which ones you would have sold this year because the number did go down. Would you have sold securities at a profit or securities at a loss? Well, clearly, if you're trying to improve the income statement for the year, you'd sell the ones that had a profit in them. And if you chose to, to uh, lower your earnings for the year, that is, smooth them downward, you would sell the ones you had a loss in. Uh, we don't know which ones were sold. I'll tell you which ones I bet. That is, we'd sell the securities with a profit. But since they're not reported, we won't make an adjustment for that. The next adjustment I would like to make, though, is circle number four, which you'll find also on page two of the balance sheet. And that's the item of 
receivables, that is, accounts receivable. Now you'll remember that sales were up some 9%. If our credit terms didn't change, we would expect receivables also to rise by about the same percentage. If they go up by more than that, it means we're collecting more slowly. If they go up by less, we're collecting faster. Well, you'll discover that if you look at the balance sheet, that receivables were up from some 500 million to 720 million dollars, an increase of about 24 percent, 140 million dollars, 580 to 740 roughly. In other words, sales were up 9 percent and receivables were up 24 percent. That means we're collecting slower. Now there's nothing wrong with that, except remember when we talked about receivables, we decided that the slower we collect them, the bigger the reserve we need for bad debt, because it's less likely we will collect if we collect slower. I get this question all the time. I don't understand this allowance for doubtful accounts, allowance for credit losses. I'm giving you the reason why, and it's in the Forensic Accounting Financial Report. You got to understand there are rules that govern what trustees can and cannot do in the world of accounting. And one of them you just learned is understanding redemption. See, in the public, when they start talking about redemption and they start talking about repatriation, they don't understand that there's an alter ego to that word, to those words in the world of accounting, especially when it comes to trusteeship. This is why you hear a lot of my mentors, they won't give creed or credibility to anything that comes from a public perspective when you don't understand accounting. They're going to look at you like you're crazy and they're going to say, okay, now explain this to me like a three-year-old. And you're going to be like, well, Bazell said, uh, Todd said, uh, such and such said, no, what do you say? Uh, I don't know. Okay, so you're expecting to get private information from the public. Let me explain this to you under the Privacy Act. The Privacy Act of 1974 is not going to allow you to do that. Matter of fact, the information you're talking about in the way you're looking at accounting is going to get you and everyone else you're dealing with in trouble. And so they don't, I don't like Bazell no more. He don't talk right. He, you know, he's talking to me, you know. So here's what I'm about to say. I just gave you how you do it, which is you're supposed to repurchase the debt and convert it to a profit. I can only talk about this when we talk about forensic accounting and financial reports. I'm asking individuals to send in accounting ledgers so we can talk in that dialogue, but I can't talk in that dialogue prematurely. Got to have something to talk about. Let me go a little deeper here since this is accounting and notary training. Uh, let's talk about some examples of debt repurchases. Now, here are some things that you may recognize. So keep listening because you just might lose something. You might learn something. This is an example of a debt repurchase that's used in a sentence. You may see it on a contract. It's called debt repurchase authorization. And this is just for laughs and giggles, death repur uh, repurchase authorization. On July 21st, 2016, our board of directors authorized the repurchase of up to $150 million aggregate principal amount of any of our debt securities, including convertible debt securities from time to time, through open market purchases, privately negotiated transactions or otherwise, until September 30th. 2019 subject to compliance with the legal and regulatory requirements and our debt covenants 
See, whenever you see something like this, they're telling you that you're going to be, uh, we're going to operate like creditors. I don't know what the hell you guys are going to do, but on July 21st, 2016, our board of directors authorized a repurchase up to $150 million aggregate principal amount. So they just told you after the fact or before it happens what they're going to do, which is going to be a debt repurchase. See, when you repurchase the debt that was created, you get to show instant profits without it being an adverse effect. Everyone else is being regulated, what, a different type way because he who holds the gold makes the rules. Keep listening because if you listen long enough, you're definitely going to learn something. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is what was done about the reserve for bad debt on receivables? Fortunately, U.S. Steel is, is forthcoming enough with its shareholders to tell them all about it. And we can find that if we look for circle number four on page three. You'll find that item on the bottom of page three on the left with a circle to the left-hand margin where U.S. Steel tells us what the reserves were. And in fact, what they report was that the reserve for bad debt at the end of 1972 was some $7.4 million, it had actually decreased from the $9 million level it was at the previous year. In other words, although receivables were up and the payment rate was down, that is, we were taking more time to collect, they actually had established less of a reserve. Now, this could be explained. If the following year was going to be as good as we thought it was, we're probably pretty certain that anybody who owes this money is going to pay because if they don't, they're not going to get any steal. However, the normal practice is to increase the reserve in proportion certainly to the increase in the receivables and probably a little bit more if the receivables are being collected slower, which indeed they are. And so if instead of reporting $7.4 million in reserves, U.S. Steel had reserved perhaps an additional 30% to take care of the 24% increase in receivables plus the slow payment, then instead of 7.4 million, reserves would have gone up from the original 9 million by 30% to about 11.7 million, but they only reserved 7.4 million. Another way of saying that is they under-reserved by the difference between the two figures, or something over $3 million. Now you understand, when you set up a reserve, that's like paying an insurance premium. It's an expense that you subtract out of earnings. Because they didn't set up this additional $3 million of reserve, that's an expense they did not incur, and as a result, their profits inc were increased by not subtracting out this, this reserve. Had they subtracted it out, 50% of it would have gone to ta as a tax change, but the other 50% would go to the bottom line, or in other words, something in the order of $2 million less earnings would have been reported because we would have reserved more and would have had to report that expense and hence reduce our cost. Here's a question. We're talking about repatriation. We're talking about redemption. We're talking about the process of repurchasing debt. Here's a question. How are we supposed to re 
purchase debt. Are we supposed to use Federal Reserve notes to repurchase debt? Or are we supposed to be using lawful legal money? Let me explain this to you. You can't answer this question unless you're doing accounting. Because you can't say, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that without using the accounting rules, the rules of credit and debit to demonstrate. So I'm going to give you a free one. Here's the question. Can you use lawful legal money to repurchase debt? Who does that apply towards? Does that apply towards debtors or creditors? Can creditors use lawful legal money? Can debtors receive lawful, lawful legal money? Keep listening because you might learn something. So perhaps instead of 157 or 142 or 135, U.S. Steel could, within generally accepted accounting principles, have reported that they earned simply 133 million for the year. Again, not a big item, but one that would lead us to look still further. The next item I'd like to look at is circle number five, the item of inventories. And you'll find that again on the balance sheet on page two. Let's see what happened to inventories for the year. You'll discover it about one-third of the way down the page on page two, the item of inventories. Before you decide what, or look at what happened, let's decide what should happen. If you thought that next year was going to be one of the great years in the history of U.S. Steel, and remember you have reason to believe it is going to be because the sales book is 18 months out and it looks great, I would suggest that I would probably build inventories so that I'd have steel to sell in this next big year, particularly if I ran into trouble, I'd have a reserve of steel and I could sell it out of the inventory instead of having to produce it. When you think you're going to have a great year, you, you produce more. Well, now let's take a look at what actually happened to, to inventories in the period between 1971 and 1972. You'll discover that inventories actually fell by some $50 million. In other words, instead of increasing inventories, U.S. Steel elected to cut inventories in the face of a great year coming the next year. Now, again, we could make explanations for it. It might be the product mix. There's all sorts of things we could tell our accountants, and we could tell the SEC and the world if we had to about why we do this. But as far as our expectations go, it is a surprise. And we probably ought to find an explanation for it. And I suppose the place to look for it is, first of all, to find out how they worry or how they account for inventories at U.S. Steel. Remember I told you the other, in another lecture that the first footnote always tells you the accounting principles. And so we probably ought to look at footnote number one, which immediately follows the balance sheet and the income statement on page four, or five rather. Footnote number one, which appears on page five, has a circle number five next to it because it refers to the inventory policy. These are the summary of principal accounting principles. And what U.S. Steel tells you is that they carry their inventories on a LIFO basis, last in, first out. Now, that should alert you. Remember when we talked about LIFO inventories with the shoe store? We decided that what happens when you liquidate a LIFO inventory, when you begin to reach back 
deep into the pile of shoes, or in this case, steel. You're reaching back for steel or shoes that were put on the books at yesterday's prices, at very low prices. In fact, in the case of U.S. Steel, as far back as 1901, when the company was founded. In other words, U.S. Steel is operating with a LIFO liquidation and reaching back for cheap steel and selling that steel. Now, we would expect that steel would be sold at a very nice profit, given how cheap it is on the books. But we have to have an idea just how cheap it is. And in order to find that, we have to go even further back. And in fact, if you look at page five, I'm sorry, page six, circle number five, you'll discover just how deep that reserve is. On page six, circle number five, in the right-hand column, they tell us about, I'm sorry, in the, in, yes, in the right-hand column, they tell us about the inventory situation. It takes a little bit of reading, but what they tell you is that the inventory is really worth about $600 million more than the books say it is because it was put at present market, because it was put on the books years ago at cheap prices, but of course if we sell it today, we'll sell it at higher prices. That means if we sell $50 million worth of inventory at today's prices, that inventory, which is carried at roughly $600 million on the books in total, is worth a billion two. Another way of saying it is the stuff we're selling is about worth about twice what we say it's worth on the books. So in other words, if we liquidate $50 million worth of inventory that's really worth about $100 million, we immediately realize at least a $50 million profit. But it's probably more than that because, remember, I argued that we should have increased inventory because we expected a big year next year. So instead of reducing inventories down to some 740 or $90 million, maybe we should have increased them by $100 million. So another way of saying that is instead of reducing by $50 million, we really reduced inventories from what they should have been by $150 million. In other words, we realized something in the order of $150 million profit as a result, because this stuff was worth about $300 million. Well, $150 million, if we take that to the bottom line, 50% tax rate, it's about a $75 million increase in earnings because we elected, instead of building inventories, to reduce inventories. Let's see what that means. $150 million of profit after tax is $75 million of additional profit. Therefore, had we elected to build our inventory rather than reduce it, perhaps we would report it $75 million less in earnings. Another way of saying that is that maybe, just maybe, U.S. Steel earned $58 million for the year rather than 157 or 142 or 135 or 133 or whatever else we wanted to calculate. A fairly significant adjustment, and one could argue what's appropriate. But you see, remember I told you, the answer to every question in accounting is always, it depends. And so I can talk out of both sides of my mouth on this issue. A good argument for reducing this deal is if we wanted to balance inventories and get the right mix, getting ready for next year, and not having a bunch of stuff around that we didn't need. Now. I know a lot of you guys are like, wow, he's saying a lot. He's going very fast. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me be real clear. See, when we talk about accounting, we can talk about both. We can talk out both sides of our mouths because it depends on who you are in the transaction. Are you a creditor or are you a debtor? What are you asking? You, when you ask a question, are you being definitive or are you just speculating? 
Because, see, a definitive answer means that you have taken a certain position. But if you don't know the position, you're just asking a blanket question, then that depends. Now, here's what's dangerous. Because you have not defined who you are when you ask the question, depends on who you're asking. It depends on who you're asking. It depends on who you're asking. It depends on who you're asking. If you're asking me as a certified public accounting, public accounting, then it's going, you're going to get a certain type of answer. Then if you're asking me as a forensic accountant, you're going to get a different type of answer. If you're asking me as a trustee, you're going to get an altogether different answer. And if you're asking me as a beneficiary of a common law trust, you're going to get a very different answer. So it depends. Who are you? The non-disclosure agreements are very important because the non-disclosures let you disclose what you need to disclose without making yourself liable. See, a lot of individuals try to take things that you say, and I'm saying individuals in the public. They'll try to take things that you say, and they try to twist and turn it and bend it to their will. And that's very difficult to do when you're under a non-disclosure. Let me explain this to you from a different altitude. If I am under a non-disclosure and I ask you for current expected credit loss, reports i ask you for ctrs in other words i need ctrs for what you've been doing in the public and then i need current expected credit loss reports because of what you're doing and you can't do both now i get to steer the recipient or litigant or defendant into whatever corner i want him or her to be be a part of because you're not competent you haven't substantiated anything i want to ask you for the two things that everybody's got to have you're going to have to have reports that show that you are CISO compliant. And you're going to have to have reports showing that you are properly substantiating what you're doing in commerce. That's the CTR report, currency transaction report. And then you're going to need a CISO current expected credit loss report showing that you understand the accounting. You don't have those two. You have no leg to stand on in commerce today because HR 5404 is in effect. Keep listening because it's going to get real interesting. On the other hand, in anticipation of a good year, it's common to build inventories. And remember, we're not trying to say what U.S. Steel's earnings were. We're trying to see what kind of range of earnings might have been reported within the discretion of management. It's management's discretion to build or reduce inventories. They elected to reduce inventories. It is interesting that the effect of that reduction is to improve earnings. Well, let's look further and see what other adjustments we might make. Circle number six on page five, as I said, reports the inventory adjustments. And now let's see what other adjustments can also be made in the same time. To date, we've looked at tax credits. We've looked at the possibility of earning money by selling off securities at a profit. We looked at the possibility of reporting less expenses by not reserving as much for receivables. And we've looked at the possibility of building or reducing inventories in the face of a good year recognizing that if we choose to reduce inventories, we call that a LIFO liquidation, that we can build earnings that way. Let's go to circle number six on page two of the balance sheet. This item is the item of investments. 
relatively small number. U.S. Steel had some investments in realty and leasing and other things that they tell us were worth some $72 million in 1972 as opposed to $63 million in 1971. However, we'd have to look in the footnotes to see whether they bought or sold any real estate or investments during that period. And indeed, we can find that on page 6, circle number 6, on the left-hand side, almost down at the bottom of the column. U.S. Steel tells us that they have equity in investments that earned them some substantial dividends during that period. And that indeed, these dividends received were fairly substantial, some $3.3 million. That's a pretty good dividend considering the amount of money that's involved, which means these are fairly high-yielding investments we're talking about. And uh, the number actually decreased from one year to the next, which suggests they must have sold off some of these investments. I won't encumber you with doing the arithmetic, but my best bet is they sold two or three million dollars worth of investments at a profit, and the profit was probably a couple million dollars. And that means another million dollars down to the bottom line. So the investment division told us how to add a million dollars to the bottom line. Not a big item, but maybe they could have reported 57 million. Now, you know, when the boss wants to report better earnings, what he usually does is to turn to the troops and say, everybody's got to make a contribution. Well, let's see who's contributed so far. The tax department told us what to do, repatriate some tax credits from overseas. The collections department told us what to do. Let's not set up as big a reserve for bad debt in the receivables group, and that'll be okay. The production people had an answer. Let's liquidate inventories rather than build them. The investment people have now suggested a way to add a million dollars to earnings, so everybody's making a contribution. And after all, doesn't the chairman always say on the first page of the annual report that he wants to thank all of the managers and employees of the company for the great contribution they made this year? Now, in the next lecture, we'll be continuing our examination and, and review of the U.S. Steel Annual Report, our walkthrough. And there's a couple questions that you might want to spend a little time on and think about before we get back together again. On page two of the annual report, that's the balance sheet, you'll discover that there's an item of plant equipment. You want to take a look at what happened to the plant and equipment item. Did it increase? Did it decrease? What should that mean in terms of depreciation charges? What should it mean in terms of maintenance requirements? If it decreased or increased, did we necessarily simply buy more plant or sell plant, or did we do both? And if we did both, did we realize a profit or a loss in the sale of whatever plant we got rid of? You might also want to take a look at circle number eight, reserves. A reserve, as I mentioned before, is basically an insurance policy. What was U.S. Steel's business plan with regard to insurance? They'll tell you what they did in their footnotes. One of the interesting things is you'll find the reserve is exactly the same to the nearest dollar in some hundred million dollars. How accurate should an accountant report numbers? Is one part in a hundred million dollars, one dollar in a hundred million dollars significant? And how should you react to data that's that precise? So think about that a little bit. In addition, I think you ought to take a look at circle number nine. You'll find circle number nine on page seven in the footnotes. And what it refers to is the pension plan. Almost every major company has a large pension plan. And I guess this would be the human resource people's opportunity to make a contribution to earnings for the year. 
take a hard look at, at what happened to the pension plan and what was going on and see what impact that would have on earnings. In addition, I suggest you review the numbers we've looked at to date, become very familiar with the report, and begin to look at some of the other items. Other items are always good fun. Uh, you'll find other items, for example, in circle number 10 on page 8, which refers to how they paid their workers. Ordinarily, labor is included in cost of goods sold. However, there are other ways to include labor costs where they don't come out as an immediate expense. You want to take a look at circle number 11, also on page 8. That refers to the maintenance that's going to be done for the year. Think a little bit about what you would do about maintenance if you thought that next year was going to be fantastic. What would be your policy and how much maintenance would you do in a relatively quiet year if you expected the next year was going to be absolutely great? Hello, welcome back to Accounting Part 2, Financial Statement Interaction, Integration, as well as a basic overview of the major accounting ratios and how to analyze the actual numbers that we'll be looking at. So, continuing on from our Part 1, going over the brief discussion of our financial statements and the different things, here we have a nice little handy exhibit in which we describe and show to you all the interrelationships in pretty colors of how all the different major items on each income statement balance sheet and cash flow are all interlinked. One note to keep in mind here when you're looking at this exhibit, just always think about this. Every single item on the income statement is also going to show up somewhere on the balance sheet and the cash flow statement. And the reverse is true. Just about every single item on the balance sheet and the cash flow statement is also going to show up on one of, actually both of the other two ratio, uh, financial statements. So whenever you're building a financial model, you always have to make sure that whatever you do to the income statement, it will have to be reflected somewhere on the balance sheet and the cash flow. Whenever you modify your balance sheet, you always have to remember, somewhere it's going to hit the income statement and the balance sheet as well. So the in understanding the true integration of how these statements are integrated, that is very critical to understanding how to analyze a company from the financial modeling, valuation, and analytics perspective. Now I want to spend a little bit of time and go through three very quick short examples of exactly how these, all of these items on the statements are actually all connected and tied to each other. We'll spend a little bit of time going through these examples. Each one will build upon itself, so make sure you understand the previous example before we move on to the next example. And then once we're done with that, then we'll look at totality, the entire totality of all of these accounting numbers, financial statements, and let's look at what they mean and interpret them to understand how we can start analyzing and crunching the data. And then we'll go ahead and we'll do a quick couple of exercises to actually iterate this with real numbers. So going back to our slides here, in this first example, we have $1,000 of cash that we have generated, that is what we will call $1,000 of revenue. This $1,000 of revenue we will have made in cash, we will receive 100% of all the cash in that time period. Employee compensation so far is $50 and you have only paid $25 so far. Folks, think about that. If you show me a business with these kind of margins, $1,000 of revenue, $50 of employee expense, you show me that and I am there in a heartbeat. Okay, but now the key here is that I have not yet paid, not yet paid this $50. I've only paid $25 so far. So you already know that versus what I'm going to report on the books versus my cash, I'm going to have slight differences. On the income statement, the first statement we'll look at, the statement of income, revenue is a thousand bucks. We have total expenses of $50. We must recognize all $50 of this ex salary expense due to the matching principle. We use all of our employees' labor that time period to help generate the thousand bucks. Now, of course, you may say, well, some employees are not productive and I shouldn't count it, but you know, you get my point. 
We will therefore show a net income of $950. When we show this net income of $950, we already know we have a potential discrepancy. What is the potential discrepancy? Well, it's very straightforward. Folks, look at my balance sheet now. I have a $1,000 balance of additional cash just from my revenue. Let's say it has $0 to begin with. I've only paid out $25 in cash so far because I've only paid the $25 as given in the assumption. That means that in my bank account, I have $975. However, I showed I have a $950 profit. I have a $25 discrepancy. How do we reconcile that? That is reconciled on the cash flow statement. I will show, first of all, through the indirect method, $950 in net income. However, this is an item called cash not yet paid of $25, which comes from my accounts payable balance, or specifically my wages payable, wages compensation payable balance, or salary payable. And therefore, I add to that, and the question I'm going to ask you is, why do we add? Let me come to that in a second. We add to that, and then we get to our $975, which now reconciles to our balance sheet number, our cash. Folks, the question I'm going to ask you is the following. Why is it that I will add the $25? Again, this is called wages payable. Why add and not subtract? The reason why we add and not subtract this $25 is very simple. Net income from the income statement has been understated so far. Why has net income been understated versus my cash position? Very simply, because... I've deducted the full $50 of this expense and therefore lowered my net income. However, from the cash perspective, I did not pay the all entire $50, only $25. So I add it back because net income has been understated via my cash position. And therefore, that is the reason why I add it back. Again, please feel free to refer to our additional exhibit on working capital to explain how this will impact our cash flow in a greater detail there as well. All right, in a perfect world, everybody thinks that the connotative concept that we discuss, they're, they, they're typically, most consumers are not aware of the duality in commerce. So the connotative concepts are the gospel. To most when in fact they're connotative this is only the gospel because you've only been reading from certain books in the gospel you haven't read the whole bible you know when you go to church they're only reading from matthew luke and john uh you're only reading from the new testament we're no longer living in the old we're living in the new you know you get what i'm saying you're only are dealing with the information that's being presented to you and you're not questioning the pastor my pastor my minister your teacher you're not questioning the narrative and because you're not questioning the narrative you're giving controlled information uh i give controlled information to individuals i feel i want to control i'm just saying that from a from a not from a creditor perspective of course but from a uh municipality standpoint they give information to their subjects in order to control the thinking of the subjects you know the subjects outnumber the municipality so we got to have them in a critical state of mind where even though they outnumber us and even though they are the true sovereigns and even though they are the people they are the power they are the sovereigns we must demonstrate that they need us when in all reality we need them so we must change their narrative. So you have been given controlled information. Anyone who has controlled information is being controlled. So uh, 
you have been given controlled information and this information is not designed to free you it's designed to keep you busy on the plantation see if all the slaves woke up tomorrow and said we're not picking the cotton then i guess no cotton will be picked because they're not going to go out there and pick the cotton it's too hot they're not built for it you know that's where they got you out there slaving saying i can leave whenever i want i like this you know what do we want we want jobs What do we want? A peanut butter sandwich. But I'm allergic to peanut butter. What do we want? <laughs> See, you don't even know what you want. You don't know what you want because your wants and needs have gone in two different directions. And so you now want what they want you to have, not what you need you need to become free from a system that's designed to enslave you now again this ain't for everybody some folks are i hate to say this but hey you've been a great slave and i don't see you changing your occupation no time soon i'm just going to be honest with you this is not for everyone this is this is the part of the training where my mentors will say well look if it's just too hard just quit because this is not for you you know just go back there's nothing wrong with going back if that's what you I'm just saying there's nothing for us to go back to. See, it's two different concepts. If you know there's nothing to go back to, then you must hunker down and buckle down and develop a denotative mind state and choose to be responsible. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of people because all their lives they've been given this controlled information and they just want you know Bazell, i don't want to do all this i just want to just i just want to just i don't want to do nothing freedom should be given to me i shouldn't have to fight for it i shouldn't have to and this is what dissipates into the universe because liberty is something that you fight for see now we're coming to the part of the class where we now get into civics Enough about accounting and notary training because this, these things are all important. But see, there is a reason why you are in trustee training and you have already expatriated out of the system and became a notary. Here's why, and this is where we get into civics. This is why these things all go together. And it's hard for a lot of people to kind of associate what we talk about because it seems like we're moving at light speed and we're not we're barely crawling we're not even because it's it's a it's a denotative concept they gave you all these connotative concepts to keep you busy on the plantation so now we're coming to the part of civics class now civics class is designed to teach you that law and history go together. Now, I want you to understand that the accounting is what they must continue to do because they owe a tributary tax. And in order for them to keep up the persona that they are in control, they have to rob or extort or exploit the citizens because the citizens are now the new commodity. Keep listening because if you listen long enough, you just might learn something.
brought her for you to pick on her because she's in the house at tonight. She yeah. So we brought her to Daddy Cash today. Go ahead, go This is the hand. That's a very good answer. Very good answer. Yours was correct. That was even more correct. Now, close the answer out. Now, this is what we want to make sure that you know what the closeout is, all right? So now, in law, when you are making an argument on an issue, you can describe the argument. You can refine the argument. You must name the parties, though. Are we clear? You can have a great argument. Don't name the parties. Your argument fails. Again, that's why we're redundant. Are we clear? Everybody clear? Clear. Excuse the scribble. Right? The Red House. 
And Alhambra is the red house. All clear. Y'all got that? You got that little mama? You just saying that. Because you be just going along with them. You got that? Alhambra means red house. Alright? That's the palace. The Emirates Palace in Al Andalus. That is later, not at that time, later in history called Spain. Are we clear? 1492. Evolving. Say it again. Say it again. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah, you're harmonizing. Because it's related. Huh? The can't hear you. Yeah, speak a little louder, y'all, because they got soft voice because they they're singers. <laughs> no, I was asking. I was watching something on I think English, um, and they were speaking about Isabel and Fernando. Exactly. 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 Now, the fall of the Alhambra which is the Red House Al, A-L, 
an da lus now the reason I'm telling you this it is so that you'll have a better understanding of the history thereafter on our mainlands of the Americas. Are we clear? Because it's not the beginning, but these are keys to the politics that are going on now. Where we're going at right now is to give you a clarity of the politics that's operative right now at Northwestern, Mexico, North America, all right? And Central and South America, all right? The occupation, and thus the politics. Distinguished from what you're told, are we clear? Are we clear? So, if we're going to solve problems, we got to know what we're dealing with. And what you discover is uh, most of our people don't know the history and therefore don't even know what they're dealing with and don't know how to deal with it anyway. Are we clear? That's what we're going to do. All right. Now, so I'm trying to avoid using up the board. So I'm depending on you to write down some of these things, all right? And just use these as mental reference points, all right? Now, with the fall of the palace, that is not the beginning of the fall, and it is not the end of the fall. It's a, a major landmark stage in the fall of the Moorish Empire, are we clear? Are we clear? Including the Battle of 1812 on Lake, Lake, uh, Lake Michigan, too. So you got to understand that these are sequential. But I'm mentioning these things because it's important for you to have a concept of the politics that you're dealing with. All right? Hmm? Oh, sure. All the time. All right. And keep in mind um, what we're talking about is taught to Europeans and also to Masons and people in secret societies, but it's codified. Are we clear? This is to keep it from you. Do you understand? That's why I want you to try to remember some things because we need this whole board basically to, you know, to give you some sequentials. Keep in mind, um,
you want to look at when you're looking at this is basically your understanding why everyone in positions of power in the contemporary world must be a mason. How many of you ever been uh, or, or participated in or been uh, a member of the Nation of Islam? All right, actual fact. What is a mason? Said, answer. Well, that's true, but that's not the answer okay. that I'm looking for. That's why I asked. Because I'm going to actual facts. In the nation of, no, you, you're not wrong, so don't misunderstand. What I'm asking, in the nation of Islam, you're given lessons. There's one of the actual facts that is given for instruction. And one of the questions yeah. is, what is a mason? Then you give the answer that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad presented. What's the answer? Yeah. No, that's your knowing as you study. That's not the answer to the actual facts. A mason is a Muslim son. That's the answer. In the nation of Islam. In other words, you're giving. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad gave keys, but just like any other operation, they expect people to study. Ah, uh, so in other words, it's kind of like a code? Like Muslim. It's, it's direct, but not necessarily understood if you don't study. Okay. You know how, like, um, people have a tendency, you give them answers, they have a tendency to be like parrots. They repeat the answer, but upon examination, they don't necessarily understand what you just told them. All right, because I don't understand what you just said. All right, count. All right, listen. I want to repeat it again. In the nation of Islam, you have lessons. We're talking about written lessons. We're not, we're not talking just the orations. Written lessons. Amongst what is called the actual facts. One of the questions is, what is a mason? The answer is, a mason is a Muslim son. All right? Now, there's multiple directions that that answer leads you to if you study. If you don't, you just repeat it to pass the test. But he's telling you this history. In other words, if you, if you study, you'll come to this history. If you don't study, you just repeat it because everybody repeats it. You know, like they tell you a test. How much is one and one? Two! <laughs> you know, everybody says it, man. You know, you ask them to refine it, then they start, um, I was getting there, and they start that kind of stuff. You know, they, their concept is not there yet. So there's a verification. It's more to it. That's what I'm saying. Do you understand? All right, let me, let me just throw some things at you. And basically what my big brother is saying, there is more to it. See, the shadow government, and I'm only going to use this because I may have a lot of people that are in the civics class, which is part of the trustee training. Um, you're trying to figure out, like we said earlier, who you are in these transactions and commerce. 
Moors are owed a tributary tax. If you don't know that history, then it becomes confusing. It's like swinging left and right in the dark and hitting nothing. So what we try to do is we have to understand that nothing happens by coincidence or happenstance. Everything is orchestrated in accordance with the divine plan. Uh, so let's talk about, since we're talking about accounting, that was for notary training and accounting training. Let's talk about why individuals are confused about taxes. Watch this. Greetings and salutations, Moors. Welcome to House of Reawakening Minds, a very special Sunday edition. Father's Day to be exact. Yes. <laughs> House of Reawakening Minds exists to provide for exploration and practice of spirituality in an enlightened community dedicated to honoring the myriad of sacred pathways to the universal creator. We are a holistic center for spiritual grounding, free thought, self-discovery, and Moorish science, an awakening experience for all ages. Tonight, we are pleased to present our national grand chief, Taj Tariq Bey. Let's receive him. Islam, Radamikum, Salam, Asalaamu Alaikum. Tonight we're going to talk about confused about taxes. I want you to take notes because we're going to hit on uh, a couple of uh, important facts for you to know. But uh, overall, it must be comprehended, and this must this fact must go deep in your mind, deep in your heart, deep in your consciousness, so that we can do some good for each other. The operators doing business on our land at North America for the last few hundred years claiming to be government are actually an organized body of criminals, predominantly of hybrid alien European descent, pretending to be Americans and pretending to be a legitimate government operating plenary powers on the land and pretending to be in service to the people of the land uh, all of which they are not, and all claims related in that nature are both fraudulent, false, in layman's terms, a lie. And those among yourselves who have been promoting uh, to you in the name of education or in the name of obligation that you are obligated to pay taxes to the hybrid alien Europeans who've been operating at North America as the United States governing body politic and the states of jurisdictions relative to states of one uh, order or the other, as an example, state of Delaware, state of Pennsylvania, state of New Jersey, state of New York, state of California, etc., are all in fact absolute fraudulent platforms 
um, that have no constitutional basis and have no treaty basis uh, and no foundation in established law whatsoever. Uh, the unfor another unfortunate reality is, is that the people have been trained for so many generations that they're obliged and obligated to contribute to a criminal body pretending to be government for so long that there's a sense of guilt in our relationship with the invaders of our land and of our legitimate republic order of government, etc., which they have secretly and in some ways openly uh, subverted, overthrown, um, etc. Uh, one of the things I want to uh, share with you is a poem I wrote in, I think it was 82 or something like that. I'll share that with you. And then we'll get into some details. Take notes. The yoke. Who declared false as devout? Though ruthless, cruel the test. And weaves of inveracity, buried truths and hidden facts. Ill-bred yokes to foul the pure that Romans triumph in the West. Feeding greed's capacity, wound the widow's unjust tax, that prospered life should not endure. But then the sun came out. Confused about taxes. People are confused about taxes because they're confused about what government is, what government is not, who they are, who they are not, who these people are who've been claiming to be the U.S. government and their subdivisional franchisee states of organizations, private for profit human trafficking venues pretending to be legitimate government for quite some time. Although there's been corruption operating on the land um, in the name of the United States, let's make this very clear for the everyday being to have some comprehension of what we're talking about in relationship to the uh, impersonators as government. Abraham Lincoln, in accord with established law on the land, in treaty and operating under the Republic's constitution, uh, was the last lawful and legitimate Republic president. So you can count from the Lincoln administration to the present day and recognize that all of the political platform operators since that time, roughly 1861, since around March the 27th, um, uh, when they did the coup d'etat, um, are frauds, are de facto, that's a fact, de facto. And all taxes, that they have been extracting from the people under the guise of service to the people have actually been transferred to the Jesuit order, the Popes of Rome, members of the Circle Church in the Chancery at Fleet Street, England, i.e. better known as the Bar Association. And that's all those lawyers that are operating the judicial system unlawfully at North America. And North America 
uh, under the United States jurisdiction has not had a lawful court operation since around mm, 1789 in that area, roughly. And that's, that's true. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's true. Now, it is the duty and responsibility of logically um, persons who claim to be scholars and persons who claim to um, be uh, aligned with treaty and constitutional principles. It is the duty and responsibility for them to have told you these things anyway, but I'm not surprised that they didn't because most of them were compromised too. And that's just simply the truth. However, it is in our interest to share information with you so that you can start taking responsibility for your lives. And then we can come together and help each other because one of the things that you have to recognize the, the social, the political, the economic problems that the people have been suffering and particularly manifest uh, in um, this contemporary time. And uh, how do you say, coming out right now, coming out and really smacking the people in the face is simply a result of the criminal acts of persons you've been calling senators, congressmen, congresswomen, and that goes for both of the corrupt parties operating on the land unconstitutionally, declaring to be Republicans, and particularly the Ku Klux Klan party declaring to be Democrats, etc., whose dedicated mission has been the overthrow of the Republic's constitution. We have the unfortunate reality um, of the people not knowing or comprehending fundamental civic operations, treaty enforcement, and thus the execution of the mandate that comes down to authorize the constitution that operates on the land that established the principles of law on the land, etc., with limitations of persons um, who are essentially elected by the people to hold limited delegated authority in the different positions on the land, exercising plenary powers, etc. Um, you may call them the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch of government operating on the land under their constitution. Now, here's what you finna hear. See, a lot of individuals here in what you call the America, the Americas, don't understand this truth. Now, I'm finna let you hear what your brothers and sisters abroad already know. Because what's happening there has already happened here. All I'm offering you is the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. Revolutionary greetings. This is Haki Kweli Shakur coming at you live from the New African Population District, Commonwealth of Virginia, within the United States Empire of America, man. And, um, this video today is very, very important. Um, I'm just getting straight to the point because it's a very serious video. Um, something that's been heavy on my mind that I think I need to be, you know what I'm saying, speaking on. So. I decided to make this video right now because I feel like the time is now because I done sat back, been quiet for long enough and watch what, what's been going on um, in West Africa, man, in the country of Nigeria. 
so this video is, is basically standing in solidarity with um, the family, um, the Biafrans, aka Igbo people, and the genocide that's being carried out on Igbo people in Biafran land, Igbo land, by the crooked, imperialist, uh, puppet Nigerian government. And I promised that I was going to make this video for a couple of people that, you know, my Igbo people, man. I love my Igbo people, man. They always uh, supported everything that I do. Um, they support my videos. They support my messages. They support my work. So it's only right that um, I support them. And this is video is basically just a wake-up uh, wake call for my people here in um, the United States Empire um, in North America. Because I know many of my people are not aware of what's going on in Nigeria right now. And this is also for global Africans all across the world who watch this video. Um, I'm speaking on the behalf of all of those global Africans to get educated on what's going on in Nigeria. It's very, very, very important, man. So, I stand here today coming from Virginia. And... and why Biafra is so important to me and the Virginia connection is because of the slavery, um, the slave trade. Many of y'all probably don't know that uh, the majority of the Africans that were, you know, kidnapped and taken out of the, uh, West Africa came from the Bight of Biafra and the Bight of Bonnie in Nigeria. So a lot of the new Africans and Africans, black people in America, uh, you're related to these people. This is where your ancestors came from. So that's another reason why I'm making this video. Um, like I told you before, at least one of us, uh, at least at least one of your ancestors is Igbo or somewhere from that region of Nigeria and Cameroon. So that's why I'm also making this video. Just to educate our people, man. And this is so important, man, for all the people across the world that's being oppressed and that's struggling and fighting for self-determination. And, and statehood and nationhood and especially our new africans here right here in republic of new africa um within the united states of america man i advise you to do your homework on what's going on right now so let me just get to the point man because i can't make this video uh too long so you know this is a solidarity with my biafran brothers uh my Igbo brothers and sisters just to let y'all know that you have brothers and sisters in north america across the United States that's watching what's going on with y'all in Nigeria. We're watching what the Nigerian government and the crooked President Buhari is doing to y'all. We're watching. You have you have family over here that's watching and, and stand with y'all. As you see me today with my red, black, and green beads that I always wear. See, a lot of people think these beads are just about Garvey. They think it's just about uh, the UNIA, but many people don't know I wear these beads because of the ancestry of the Igbo people and Biafran nation. So let me get right on to it, man. Let me get this point clear, man. Study self-determination. Self-determination uh, 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 of a people is a human right under international law. And what does this law state? This law states that the rights of people to self-determination is, is their right to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, uh, social, and cultural development as a people. The self-determination is a human right. It's under the Article 1 of the UN Charter, 1945, man. 
Go research that. And I just emphasize that point because a lot of people are not politically educated on what is self-determination, man. Uh, this is a human right. You see what I'm saying? And these people, our people, our brothers and sisters, human rights are being violated in Biafra, man. In Nigeria, by the Nigerian government. They're being murdered, killed, all because they want to return to what they were which is a nation state, the Republic of Biafra, which is being led by a, a brave soldier by the name of Nandi Kanu of the IPOB, Indigenous People of Biafra. These people are under attack. They're being murdered because they want to be free. So I want my people here to start to support our brothers and sisters in Biafra, man. You don't see this on CNN. You don't read about it in the political debate. Black lives all of a sudden matter. Let me explain this to you in your face. You can only lead a horse to water. You can't make him or her drink it. Now, as long as they got you over here, calling yourself black, negro, and colored, and they have disenfranchised you from the rest of your family, which is our Biafran brothers and sisters and the Igbo people, you have no clue on the political ramifications of what you're standing in the middle of. You have no clue on the level of precautionary measures that the colonists have taken in order to extrapolate, exploit and eradicate the beneficiaries of the Moroccan Empire. You have no idea that what you are looking at is the direct result of the Peace and Friendship Treaty of 1787. You do not understand that Donald J. Trump who announced back in 2017, I think, of H.R. 5404, he was brought in to reassert the political agenda because they owe the Moorish Empire a tributary tax. The reason why they're killing your brothers and sisters there in the Biafra, the Biafra, it's because they want to go back to a nation state. Them going back to a nation state totally takes away their sovereign power. They have actually marketed a debt derivative on each and every citizen that's born in what they call the United States here abroad. They were broke. They owed the Moroccan Empire. And so in order for them to keep up the tributary tax, they had to take you out of your sovereign status and deduce you to United States citizens. You are a stateless people. You have no nation. So this pandemic has caused great discord abroad. Why? Because of what you're listening to what you're seeing what you're experiencing and you want to say that black lives matter all lives matter
but you can't be considered a human being if you're not attached to the land. You got to have a nationality. And this is a human right. Protected by international treaty. The question is, who are you? What do you stand for? What are you fighting for? But the real question is, what are you dying for? Keep listening. You might learn something. They need us. And all it, all that they need from us is to make this, you know, the globe aware of the genocide that's being taken out on them by the Nigerian government. That's all you have to do, man. Because we know the United Nations and all these type of people, they don't care, man. This has been going on for decades, man. This has been going on ever since Biafra tried to uh, uh, um, separate from Nigeria the first time when Nigeria came into creation. So let me get to this real quick. What is Biafra? Biafra is... is, is uh, the land of the rising sun, basically. It's, it's, it's basically consists of the Cross River State, Ebanyi, Enugu, Anambra, Emo, Abia, Aqua, Ibom. These are the states that make up Biafra land, and some of Biafra land stretch all the way into Cameroon. So do your research on that. You see what I'm saying? And why is this genocide being taken out on Biafran people? Because they don't want Biafran people to uh, bring the Republic of Biafra back into nationhood and statehood because this is the majority of where the resources in the oil fields are located in Nigeria. This has been going on ever since the 1960s, people. The Hassa, the Fulani, the Yoruba, uh, were all assisted by the British government to commit genocide against Igbos. The, these fundamentals must be known and comprehended before you analyze anything political and economic that involves your life, which you should be doing. Any, and write this, this is so important for everyone to write down so you don't forget this. Any corporate entity that is constructed under the jurisdiction of any political system, etc., must be by law a creature of its constitution. If any institution, agency, or organization that imparts, practices, imposes, implies, authorizes, or claims any burden or obligation on the natural people of the land or the citizens of the political order, if it's not a creature of the Constitution and a creature of the treaty, because the Constitution is a creature of the treaty, keep that in mind. And the Constitution is the foundation that establishes the law. So whatever institution or agency that has any authority whatsoever to operate on the land must be a creature of the constitution if it is not that's your first measure to recognize criminality so if you see any institution that any politician tells you you're obligated to as an example on um, the inquisition revenue services 
known as the um, Internal Revenue Service. It's actually a private, for-profit, foreign collection agency and accounting agency for a foreign United States corporation company operatives of the Roman Curia that are absolutely geographically and politically foreign to the Constitution for the United States and has been operating criminally since its construction to actually serve the purposes of all these congressmen and senators and other alleged, and that's, I mean, really alleged, I mean, like really alleged public official who have been self-serving and serving their parties, their private parties for profit and creating slush funds and offshore accounts for themselves. This is why all the politicians are wealthy within a short period of time. They are wealthy because they understand the rules of credit and debits. They are wealthy because of the accounting system, the ledgering system. They are wealthy because they understand that they are in trusteeship. And if you simply put all of these pieces together, then your position within what you're doing with your estate is easy. It's not difficult. It's not hard. It's not a task that you don't want to do. It's something that you must do because the world depends upon your ability to stand and be counted. The, world's, the, the world right now is looking at the fact that you are at the threshold where for the first time in a long time, in your lifetime, you can become the change you want to see because of this information age this technology and this technology is not new this technology was simply kept out of the hands of the masses because if taxes started everything if it began with taxes it'll end with taxes you're either worthy to learn or worthy to serve but you will comply You got to understand that their position is that they must tell you what they're going to do before they do it. Your job is to anticipate and make preparation and do what you're supposed to do. Let me explain this to you a different way. The most valuable commodity that a lot of debtors are going to be subject to and predicated on is going to be food. Food is going to be a commodity. If you are not in a position where you have enough agriculture to sustain your family and yourself for the next six months, you are playing Russian roulette with a loaded gun. And time is quickly evading you. If you are waiting for a stimulus check from what you call the government, remember you just heard Big Brother Tosh Tariq Bay explain to you that when they tell you that if you don't vote Democratic, you you know only a you know black people are supposed to vote Democratic, you know that's a buzzword, and that that infuriates me. 
because the political parties are here to keep the masses asleep. The true politics is what you're seeing in the Biafra and places like that. That's the true politics because like Jack Nicholson said in the movie A Few Good Men, the truth, you can't handle the truth. Truth is you're perpetuating your own slavery and you won't do the math to get yourself out of it. You won't figure it out. You want somebody else to do it for you. And that time has passed. See, we're on an accelerated time schedule. And what I foresee, again, I'm just a messenger. I have no power. I'm just an ordinary man that seeks extraordinary knowledge. Because I'd rather die free than to live as a slave. And because of that, I will until I have no more breath left and someone else picks up the mantle. I will continue to give you the truth because the truth is not up for debate. If you keep listening, you will learn something. They've been robbing you. Now that's the fact. Get over it. You've been played. You've been played royally. You've been played like a violin with no strings. And, um... So we're talking about confused about taxes. So the first thing you must recognize is that these people who you thought were government are actually organized criminals and they've been running this game on you um, since most of us have been breathing in this particular body. Um, Islam, I just want to interject that there is a, a young brother, RJ, says Islam, brother Islam. he says, Islam, brother Taj, I'm 11 years old. And my father has been teaching me this for five to six years. Beautiful, beautiful. And it is good to know really that some parents love their children enough to tell them the truth at an early age. Because many people know this, but they won't talk about it. Because the people are actually afraid of these people who they've called government because these people who they've been calling government have actually been murdering the people and actually sending out gangs, members of the gangs of New York, um, to actually put hits on people who they consider um, not aligned or, how do you say, not conforming to the frauds that have been. And, and, and this is another thing where a lot of our people get confused, to some degree confused. Um, but alarmed when they see members of the gangs of New York, like wolf packs, jump on unarmed men and women across this land and literally murder them in front of the people and never go to jail. Uh, and this is because they don't understand that these people are organized criminals. And they don't understand that before they make a decision to exterminate a class of people they got to prepare the narrative so all you see in the newspaper in the media on facebook and twitter is this person being beaten to death by the police this person being beaten to death by the police these things are happening all on your watch it becomes the normal and when it becomes the normal they are preparing you for a mass extermination and you got to understand that how do you exterminate a massive 
group of people is you do it through starvation. You do it through vaccination. It's called Agenda 21. These things have we been speaking about for over three plus years. And if you're just joining trustee training, you got to understand all these things come first. So, therefore, when you're doing your reevaluation for this state, you're not wayward. You're not easily shaken. You don't have you have a firm foundation because it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. It's a natural reaction for any slave once he or she knows that they are slave to want to become free. That's a natural reaction. It's normal. It's normal. What's abnormal is when you see your people being oppressed. When you see these things happening, you just stand idly by because of your 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 you have a fear. And again, I'm not saying going out there and because I'm not I have been asked by a lot of groups to say certain things and I'm I'm staying in my lane. Look, I'm just the messenger. I'm not that guy. All I'm going to say is that when it comes to mine, that's all I can say. What I will say is that the only thing these colonists respect is your intellect and your ability to prohibit the exploitation of an estate and your willingness to go after the birdcage, you know, if you will. You know, since they're, they're, they're two wings on the same ugly bird, you got to be willing to go after their birdcage. You got to shake things up. You got to go after them commercially. That's the only thing they respect. It's the great equalizer. That is the battlefield. You know, they have been notoriously, if you don't believe or have faith or consent, then they will come take it by force. And a lot of our people are so disenfranchised. <laughs> you know, what are you living for? What are you dying for? You know, so there's an expectation on the part of the unknowing and unsuspecting people because they keep thinking that these people are their government. They keep thinking that these people are their public servants. They are not. Let's get this very, 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 very clear. You are not suffering from the mental midgetry mind control, Carlos Linnaeus race game that was set up to deny your bloodline and pedigree and nationality. The race game was put in place to move from the minds of the people, their inherited pedigree and nationality and put race there to deny their obligations to the treaty and to the Constitution, and people have not suspected it, and people who know this won't talk about it uh, for various reasons. And it, know this for surety. It's not a lack of knowledge. People keep um, have a tendency to keep thinking that 
well, you know, some people know this stuff and some people don't. They got different opinions. No, they don't have no different damn opinions. All your politicians know exactly what I'm talking about. All your so-called leader guys with titles know this. Most of them being Masons, most of the women being Eastern stars. Uh, and all of them knowing that you're Moors. We're talking about the, the true al Moroccans, the true people of the land are the Americans, i.e. Northwest Africa, Morocco. Um, one of the games that they've been playing, uh, and write this down, impersonation, personation, masking, pretext, hoax, fraud, prima facie, colored, and look them all up in law.
They have been comfortable getting away with this fraud because most of the people, uh, unfortunately, have been trained in quantitative linguistics and have not been, it has not been brought to their attention to always separate connotation from denotation when looking up uh, particularly uh, important words or phrases in relationship to their everyday affairs relative to uh, politics, relative to pedigree, history, um, and they definitely don't talk about pedigree and bloodline, so they really don't. You know, they talk about races. Uh, the other thing that you must recognize is that um, for those who, um, who are, are of interest, although this is connected, do all the research you can on Carlos Linnaeus and you'll find the race game that is used to control the narrative of the people uh, and particularly in North America and it has been contaminating the entire planet Midgard but um, for the most part uh, exported upon the rest of the peoples of the planet from North America under the auspices and control of the pol political order of the Kyklos, the Circle Church, and the Chancery, uh, controlled also from Fleet Street, England. So don't look at um, from the political perspective. Do not look at separate jurisdictions when you're looking at operations of economic, political, and warfare activities launched, launched from North America and think that it is determined by a uh, simple body politics operating from geographic North America, i.e. Washington, D.C., or from your uh, subdivisional corporate state um, seats of the governors, etc., and the senators, etc., and the congressmen and congresswomen. It operates from England, England, and so let's not look at England just the land or Britain. Um, look at the Circle Church in the Chancery, Fleet Street, England, known to most of you as the Bar Association. That's these lawyers that's been running around here getting wealthy at the expense of the poor and stealing, stealing the widow's pennies, claim to be law abiders when actually their major mission operation at North America has been absolutely to undermine and overthrow and subvert the Republic Constitution and to neutralize any interfacing of the people who have right airship with the treaties that supersede the Constitution that bind them to establish law. Breaking news and the headline reads Protest in Benin, police on the run. Prison gate open as innocent prisoners we are set free. Here are the news in details. But before we go on to the analysis and the details of this. So now we're back to confused about taxes. It must be understood that one of the major functions. That you of may be notified. 
anytime we publish any news on YouTube. Okay, here we go now. The information reaching our news desk this very moment has it that protest in Benin City is so strong that even as police officers in PMB police station Benin City tried to shoot them, they stood on their ground and they were never moved. Rather, the police station is was was ransacked, prisoners, innocent prisoners, precise, bear it on mind, please, don't make mistake about it. Innocent prisoners were set free and the city is rocking as I'm speaking to you right now. This is exactly what is happening in Igodomigodo, the Binidu land, Bini city. Yes, there is a station called PMB, PMB Police Station. That is PMB, all of us will know the meaning. I believe the meaning is President Muhammad Buhari, and the person who renamed that very police station must be a Fulani man, a Fulani DPO. Yes, that very station, if you are close there now, and you are not aware of what is happening there or what has already happened there today today being the 19th day of october 2020 you must make your make your inquiries now and get informed if you if you are not in benicity you can as well make a call we would have shown you the video we have the video also but we cannot be able to show you the video because the source of the video is not from Biafra United Channel, so we don't have right for that very video. That is the gospel truth. But we have the video, everything that happens there today, we have the video. And that is the reality. So, but we cannot show you. But this very picture you are seeing is from Bini City. These very pictures are from Bini City. Yes. These are things that happen today in Bini City as the protests become too loud and clear that the police can no longer stop them. Even there were some army officers who came there with motorbike, but they couldn't be able to move, they couldn't be able to stop them because the protest, the protest is very, very strong. As I'm talking to this picture now, you see people on the fence, uh, prisoners jumping out from the police station. And these are innocent people who did nothing but we are illegally were illegally abducted and dumped in the police station. Some of them, because they could not roger, they call it roger, they couldn't roger the police officer, they were arrested. Some of them is because of SARS. Some of them were arrested by SARS officers and they were dumped in that very station. And some of them were abducted and put there because they don't have anybody who can speak for them. People are suffering. Innocent people are suffering. These are the things that we have here in this very damnable zoological republic of Nigeria. That is the reason why the youth have risen up. Now they want to be free. Everybody wants to be free because the kind of treatment we receive in this very damnable zoological republic of nigeria is unspeakable we cannot be able to speak it we cannot be able to talk about it because it's too much who which one are we going to talk are we talking about the the police brutality or are we talking about the SARS abduction? Are we talking about SARS extortion? Are we talking about road safety extortion? Are we talking about the military invasion? Are we talking about the full and terrorist organization? What we are seeing in this very 
in this very damnable zoological republic is unspeakable. We cannot be able to speak it. That is why we have risen up and we want to be free from all these menace. We want all of these things to, to stop. We want to put an end to this criminal criminal regime and these very criminal gangs that call themselves political leaders in our land. G. Henry Ford, all of them supported the Nazis. Members of the Tea Party still telling black jokes. You wearing the clothes, but the designer hates black folks. Reporters want to get dirt, sound bites and excerpts. CNN must mean corrupt news network. Lost every dime you had, riding with the wrong stock. Made in USA is dead, China got it on lock. Lost your 401k and all the paper you was holding. Cause you invested in something somebody else was controlling. They make it go up or down, rise high, fall deep. The market's manipulated by people on Wall Street. Talk about the Middle East like America's airless university campus and movie theater terrorists. True devilish temperament. The government is infamous. Ask them what they do to Guantanamo Bay prisoners. They dominate the airwaves and lie to the listeners presenting false information intended to condition us. The black man's thinking since slavery is the evidence. Most don't understand what the Willie Lynch let them in Centuries of self-hate and divisions of blacks Now they twist the difference between racism and facts We read the Declaration of Independence with blinders There were nine Freemasons among the 56 signers In 1870, along came the Shriners A higher order of masonry with a secret behind them The sword on the logo, it speaks for itself Meaning anyone who tells the secret is put to death Who is Hiram Abiff? What's his true identity the devil's agenda be to kill us mentally continually the wolf in sheep's clothing who fabricated divinity the enemy who murders through lies science and chemistry trickery and industry for power they forever plot you went to war to fight for a freedom that you never got dirty chess moves executed by the hidden hand now they plotting on a way to go to war with iran same game used again same wicked methods born just like paul wolfowitz had done before death saying that your labor was income, which means you testified against yourself and lied and said that your labor was foreign capital gains by virtue of foreign investment and thus income. And that's where your income tax implication has its origin. And it's all a lie. And so... These congressmen, these senators, these uh, mayors, um, and these council people have been organizationally and with cognates robbing the people. And then as the burden of the tax builds on the people's back because they can never keep up with it, then they come and steal your homes, etc that you thought was yours because you didn't meet the tax obligations that accumulated and then they circulate your estate again. That's what's been going on. I want to ask you, I want to ask you to answer this for yourself. Are you confused about taxes? I think most of us have been and I think we need to straighten this up. And I think it is well for the people who have been claiming to care about, quote unquote, our communities 
to change their conversations from the BS of race and color of your skin type thing and recognize that you've been colonized. And a colonizer in the nature of political operations is equivalent to what a leech is in biology. So when you get into dirty, stinky, muddy water and you come up with freckles, more than likely they're not freckles, they're probably leeches. And when you get involved with any of these politicians who have been faking as Americans for quite a few generations, who have been using brand systems, that's the common phrase, branding systems, you know, like Negro, black color, things like that, those are brands, Smith, Jones, and Johnson against Asiatic people. Those are non de gear. They're war names. That's what they are. They are war names. It takes you out of their obligations to the obligations of the treaty and the enforcement of the treaties via the Constitution for the United States. They've misclassified you and they've been stealing your estates and living off your virtues for quite some time. The issue is are you going to help? straighten this mess up that's the issue before you now i'm giving you some examples and you can do some research for yourself and for those of you who doubt what i've said to the house of reawakening minds you'll be able to get this book this little booklet confused about taxes in the very near future in its original text most of these ones that were printed before were printed had what you would call expense issues and they were heavily reduced in order to make them publishable because we much of our stuff we did not publish through the regular publishing houses as they wanted us to compromise in reconstructing history that the congress for the united states may 10 of 1861 adjourned synod it was really a coup d'etat this is important for you to get that very clear, the shadow government begins. In honest, in earnest, are we clear? Are we clear? Clear. So that's May 10. Now we're looking at a 10 year span and we're going to talk about this 10 year span, all right? Cena D. Was really a coup d'etat. That's what really was. Are we clear? In a 10 year span, they completed their in-house training for their membership to impersonate the offices while they really no longer held the offices. Are we clear? Are we clear? That's called Act of Congress. Eighteen seventy-one. That's February. 
Just second. Are we clear? You see that roughly, roughly uh, a 10 year span. Give or take a, a month and a half. So. Are we clear? A new American revolution has begun, not against the forces of a colonial kingdom, but a rebellion against an oppressor that has risen among us. It is not a foreign invasion we have to fear, rather the threat of a force within our nation that has usurped what was once a dream of having the greatest democracy ever known to man. We now live in a world where the population has grown exponentially and the planet is running out of resources to sustain us all. We in the inner city and those struggling in the suburban ghettos may not realize it yet, but make no mistake, the people who control the technology and run every enterprise that makes up our world have seen this coming for a long time. The ideas of renewable energy, global warming, the idea of collectively working were purposefully bought out, derailed, demonized, or corrupted in favor of an economic structure designed by a monetary caste system. In a desperate attempt to convince us that we need to maintain that extravagant existence, they've pretended we might share in their dream, that we can justify any inhumanity in its name. Out of this blind ignorance was born the curse of slavery. Many of the founders of this nation were themselves Masons. That is not a left-wing or right-wing conspiracy theory. It is a widely known and accepted fact. So then explain to me how a nation founded by men who not only understood the long and complicated history of Europe, but also that of Africa, could permeate such a lie in convincing the American public that one race of men was superior and one inferior. When in fact we know that all the early men, the people who created civilization, Every aspect of what we see today, the foundation of all modern human life, were from Africa. The greatest cowardice, of course, came not with slavery itself, unfortunately, but with the excuses for slavery. For if America had been as brave as the Roman Empire and all other empires that had come after her and claimed, no, we were just stronger, and that's why we took you, then when slavery was over, racism would have probably followed in suit. But instead, it was the social lie, the religious lie that was told, that stayed in the minds of people, that separated one human being from another, in order to distract us from the issues of class and freedom. They created issues around religion and race to dominate the world for centuries to come. Some claim that they respect the culture of life in this country. They cry out for the indignity of children that are slaughtered before they are born. 
but God has not penetrated their souls, for they have no empathy, nothing in their cold hearts for the hundreds of thousands of lives we have taken in our wars overseas, for that which they call collateral damage, which are the burnt and damaged children of the world. They have no prayers for them, only snide commentary on the internet and laughter in their hearts, and yet you claim to be one with God. <laughs> we talk about immigration in this country. Mike doesn't make right, ladies and gentlemen. It just makes right now. What we are saying to the rest of the world is one day when America grows weak, one day when her legions falter, on a day when her economy crumbles, China, Russia, Europe, whatever power has arisen, all you have to do is come here and conquer us in a few military excursions, and then you too can set up shop here, and in a hundred years you can tell every red-blooded American, no, you are an illegal human being. I am the true citizen. I have all the rights. You have no rights. Maybe you forgot how you got this country. Maybe you take for granted the blood, the sweat, the tears that the people who live in practical serfdom shed every day. For we may not run America, but we make America run. We talk about the law, yet how many indignities have been legal in the past? How many treaties with Native American people have we broken? How many international laws have we violated? And speaking of laws, how can a corporation be regulated by a government that is funded and controlled by corporations? How can there be accountability for people who see a profit margin above the lives of Americans, above the lives of human beings in other countries? We have taken the soul out of ourselves and placed them inside machines. My words, of course, will be marginalized, demonized in typical fashion. Anytime you dare to question the power structure, they say you hate America. No. I love this country. I see its beauty every day and its people. And I love it a lot more than those that have abandoned the American worker that have chose to exploit and try and take away every single benefit that she has, those that attempt to make excuses for every atrocity committed in the name of supposed freedom, those who demand accountability from everyone, but offer none themselves, who favor contracts over lives, who favor invasion and control over organic democracy overseas. The greatest flaw that any intelligent person has is to think that they're smarter than everyone else. And so, as the government has planted its spies amongst us, we have planted our spies among them. They have infiltrated every branch of the American government. They have retrieved names, data, hard numbers, the paper trail that will expose those that truly control this country those that control the political parties, those that control the oil industry, the energy, those that stand behind the companies, faceless, whose names have never been revealed until today.
They've interrupted our programs for a news report. Welcome to More TV England. I'm your host, Chris Scott. Now, it is a great Masonic secret that has long been revealed that it was George Washington who chopped down the cherry tree of the Moors, erasing them from the history books and removing their nationality, fez and turbans. It was even predicted that in a few hundred years, many of them would not remember who they were or their connection to the land. Who are the Moors? This is one of the most difficult of historical questions. And in fact, this is the most neglected chapter in black history. When you go back into history, uh, 1800s and back, Moor and African are synonymous. One of the things that our people uh, mistake, they look at Moor as being a club or belief system, which it is not. It's their pedigree, it's the bloodline. Where do the Moors fit into our history? Because you know it's been this beef going on about the Moors come out of Egypt, we are not black. Where do the Moors fit into Egypt, ancient Egypt? At the time of building the Great Pyramids, was our people calling themselves Moors and where did that word come from? Well, Moor means black. Okay. Okay. Now, Moors, I agree with you about that. Moor means black. Moore is deeply steeped in, in the Greek tradition you heard what he said? And, in the, and in the Roman tradition. More means black. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the streets. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's nothing to it. You know, the air is unfit to breathe. Our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we have 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. In that span between the coup d'etat and the Act of Congress, 1871, this was the perfecting of the political platform for the coup d'etat to smoothly operate with everybody being trained to impersonate the officers that no longer existed in their authority at all. Are we clear? Are we clear? Shadow government. Are we? That's something that was done kind of like privately. Now you're talking to public and private that you hear people talk about without really explaining the real history. They keep talking about debtor, creditor, and all that kind of stuff, and holder in due course, and there ain't no money type thing, and think they're going to get attacked. This is the real history. If you don't understand the global trust, you have no claim. I don't care what the hell you do. That's why I'm telling you this history, because people keep on getting in these scenarios where people keep on selling them processes that represent a promise of attachment to the estate, and you ain't getting crap. It gives this man time. It must be collapsed. Do you understand? You're not getting anything from him. 
be buying time to get you on a, to get you on a treadmill. This, you know, anybody that knows this process of operating with these real cameras, if you've been really studying, this is why we go back to the HMO, so I'm going to say, um, there's a, um, this wealthy European named Emily Ford. He's come to round table once in a while. She's a writer for the Higher Truth magazine. And as a matter of fact, interesting thing about it, that chat uh, picked me up the day earlier, and I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And it's actually at that house that I used to hold the classes with Brother Lee, who used to be a Scientologist, and I told him that he came out of that and he became object for the round table. And he held classes there until he passed four and two or three. Emily Ford is a wealthy European woman um, and writer for Higher Truth magazine. And one of the sisters used to come to the class named Darlene. And Emily came there, she said, um, in this order. Um, are Europeans allowed to come to the round table? I mean, do you mind? You know, because I mean, because they use a lot of the so-called freedom European groups have always used some of our information. Anyway, they adjusted, but they've been doing it for years. Already. And also, uh, Emily uh, came to uh, round table a few times. She actually shared a lot of information, right? One day, uh, she asked me um, um, about um, what my thoughts were about some of the European so-called sovereignty groups, etc. Um, and at sometimes with some of the groups they were talking white Christian sovereign, and um, these are some some of the demonstrations they were using. And there was another European that that um, was doing classes named Phil Marsh, I think it was Phil Marsh or something like that. Um, they were like charging like 1500, 1600 classes. You know, we were giving classes free, you know, to people. And they were charging 1500 for classes for this information. All right, family. I want you to pay attention. If you understand who you are in these transactions, then this won't be confusing. If you're trying to just do the commerce part of it and then you don't want to figure out the nationality side of it, you don't think it really has any importance, here's what I hear all the time. Well, you know what? I'm just going to just do this part and then I'll figure everything else later. And then they realize they've totally compromised what they're doing because they never were true to self. There is an energy that goes with this information. The body goes where the mind is. So... I simply say be true to self. When you're true to self, then everything else becomes easier because you become the source and the change that you want to see. See, the rules in the in the public uh, system, positive law, if you will, uh, there are principles and fundamentals that go with that. And that's where you learn the fundamentals. Remember, the fundamentals are far and few between. They're few. The fundamentals are few. The processes are many, and your job is to develop your own process in what's being done. I'm just simply providing you a fundamental aspect with a firm foundation. It's very difficult a lot of times to try to get people to see what's so obvious. 
see when you don't have no true origin of self everything else becomes discomplacent discombobulated not a focus you're flailing like a feather in the wind you know you're just subject to whichever the way the wind blows see if you're firm like a rock or a foundation you're unmovable everything else is built upon that foundation so who you are in dealing with your estate should be as firm as a rock unmovable see a lot of individuals don't understand that the battles that are being won are being won in the mind first and then everything else is brought into fruition see you are only given certain degrees you know you was given belief and faith without fruition but when you deal in this type of information fruition must become part of the fundamental process and a lot of you guys the only way you're going to learn is you're going to go out here and experience it yourself you got to touch it in order for it to become real to you you got to get involved it's not up for anyone else outside of you to do what's necessary I have a very distinctive job, which is to provide you the information. And trust and believe, we're not even scratching the surface of all the information that's there. I'm only talking about accounting and civics because these are the two things that are most misunderstood about the entire process. Remember, there are people within the same conversation that are talking about redemption and repatriation. and don't even understand that it's accounting. Keep listening. Because if you listen, we'll know. He just might learn something. Most of us will testify publishing because we will not sell out. However, when we republish these, we will be having all of the original note texts in them. And those who have these books understand that all the original notes were not in there. We reduced them because they were desktop and at the same time for the amount of pages for the staples on etc. So what we did, we, we ended these. The in Spain had come to an end, had come to grief, in fact, in their last stronghold, Granada. When the Castilian, Spanish were defeating the Moors, a painting was done of the defeat, and there were black generals surrendering. What were they surrendering if they were not in charge? We did not just Are we Moors? Are, are the Kenmite committed people the same They're, people? Yes, same people, same people. This okay. is what we must, what our people don't understand. This is, this is why it's more important for our people to get a, a, a knowledge of world history. Moore is the last legal name that these Asiatics who are calling themselves today, Negro, Black, colored, Afro-American, Soul Brothers, whatever they are this week, that's the last legal name we fell in as the Christians took over. And we must rise as we fell. An asset, per se, or right of property, um, can rightfully and lawfully be held allodially by beings in their proper person, 
not persons operating under nom de guerres, pseudonyms, war names, etc. Meaning that, let me keep it simple for, um, say, some of you who, who don't get where I'm coming from. As an example, in, in um, proper commercial trade around the world, uh, although you may be enthusiastic about um, having the opportunity to sell a product, um, you will probably have great problems setting up a company selling elephants as pit bulls. Likewise, a being um, who has no nationality by law around the planet would be listed as a stateless person. A stateless person uh, has no standing to set up what you would call a trust because technically and in fact they are not identifiable or verifiable. As an example, um, say someone of Manchurian uh, political or pedigree, etc. And uh, some you may call them Chinese, etc. A Chinese, as an example, just for the average person to to have a concept of what I'm speaking of, a Chinese cannot go around the world transacting businesses and trade legitimately, uh, saying they're the light-skinned yellow guy organization of light-skinned yellow people. I have nothing but respect for all religions. I'm not going to play with people's feelings, okay? Because we don't have time for that. Because every faith system comes out of Africa anyway. So you must respect the Bible. You must respect the Quran. You must respect um, the Kabbalah. Whatever it is, comes out of our mind. So I have nothing but love and respect for our brothers and sisters, no matter what religion, no matter what you are. All right. Peace and love, family. Peace and love. Um, going to talk to you today about a issue that we deal with in civics. Um, when I'm actually bringing everyone up to speed when it deals with commerce, and it's bringing everybody to the reality of what you're dealing with when it comes to taxes. Now, I'm going to take a very different approach because I'm going to approach this as if everyone is a United States uh, or a 14th Amendment citizen, if that makes sense to you. Um, those of you that are Moors, um, I want you to listen to this also because it'll help explain what everybody already knows. Okay. Welcome to the Silver Report Uncut. Now, somebody brought this up yesterday, and it's very interesting. Whenever you go and try to look this up, what you find as far as videos... In fact, the video has all been scrubbed from the internet. All that remains in the video that is supposed to be the same speech is not the same speech whatsoever. So I wanted to go over this trafficant speech because I think it's a very important part of history that must be accessible to people. So this is from Representative James Trafficant Jr. of Ohio when he addressed the House of Representatives March 17, 1993. He begins, Mr. Speaker, we are here now in Chapter 11. Members of Congress 
are official trustees presiding over the greatest reorganization of any bankrupt entity in world history, the U.S. government. We are setting forth, hopefully, a blueprint for our future. There are some who say it is a coroner's report that will lead to our demise. It is an established fact that the United States federal government has been dissolved by the Emergency Banking Act, March 9, 1933. 48 Stat 1, Public Law 89-719, declared by President Roosevelt being bankrupt and insolvent, H.J.R. 192, 73rd Congress M. Session, June 5, 1933. Joint resolution to suspend the gold standard and abrogate the gold clause, dissolved the sovereign authority of the United States in the official capacities of all United States government offices, officers and departments, and is further evidence that the United States federal government exists today in name only. The receivers of the United States bankruptcy are the international bankers via the United Nations, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. All United States offices, officials, and departments are now operating within a de facto status in name only under the emergency war powers. With the constitutional Republican form of government now dissolved, the receivers of the bankruptcy have adopted a new form of government for the United States. This new form of government is known as a democracy, being an established socialist communist order under a new governor for America, this act was instituted and established by transferring and or placing the office of the Secretary of Treasury to that of the governor of the International Monetary Fund. Public Law 94-564, page 8, section HR 13955 reads in part, quote, The U.S. Secretary of Treasury receives no compensation for representing the United States, unquote. So the Federal Reserve System is a sovereign power structure separate and distinct from the federal United States government. The Federal Reserve is a maritime lender and or maritime insurance underwriter to the federal United States operating exclusively under admiralty maritime law. The lender or underwriter bears the risks and the maritime law compelling specific performance in paying the interest or premiums are the same. Assets of the debtor can also be hypothecated to pledge something as a security without taking possession of it as security by the lender or underwriter. The Federal Reserve Act stipulated that the interest on the debt was to be paid in gold. There was no stipulation in the Federal Reserve Act for ever paying the principal. Prior to 1913, most Americans owned clear, allodial title to property, free and clear of any liens or mortgages until the Federal Reserve Act 1913, hypothecated all property within the federal United States to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, in which the trustees held legal title. The U.S. citizen was registered as a beneficiary of the trust via his or her birth certificate. In 1933, the federal United States hypothecated all of the present and future properties, assets, and labor of their subjects. The 14th Amendment, U.S. citizen to the Federal Reserve System.
In return, the Federal Reserve System agreed to extend the Federal United States Corporation all the credit it needed. Like any other debtor, the Federal United States government had to assign collateral and security to their creditors as a condition of the loan. Since the Federal United States didn't have any assets, they assigned the private property of their economic slaves, the United States citizens, as a collateral against the unpayable federal debt. They also pledged the unincorporated federal territories, national parks, forests, birth certificates, and nonprofit organizations as collateral against the federal debt. All has already been transferred as payment to the international bankers. Unwittingly, America has returned to its pre-American Revolution feudal roots whereby all land is held by a sovereign and the common people had no rights to hold a loyal title to property. Once again, we the people are the tenants and sharecroppers renting our own property from a sovereign in the guise of the Federal Reserve Bank. We the people have exchanged one master for another. This has been going on for over 80 years without the informed knowledge of the American people, without a voice protesting loud enough. Now, it's easy to grasp why America is fundamentally bankrupt. Why don't more people own their properties outright? Why are 90% of Americans mortgaged to the hilt and have little or no assets after all debts and liabilities have been paid? Why does it feel like you are working harder and harder and getting less and less? We are reaping what we have sown, and the results of our harvest is a painful bankruptcy and a foreclosure on American property, precious liberties, and a way of life. Few of our elected representatives in Washington, D.C. have dared to tell the truth. The federal United States is bankrupt. Our children will inherit this unpayable debt and the tyranny to enforce paying it. America has become completely bankrupt in world leadership, financial credit, and its reputation for courage, vision, and human rights. This is an undeclared economic war, bankruptcy, and economic slavery of the most corrupt order. Wake up, America. Take back our country. So it's interesting that the man in 2002 was arrested and put in jail as a part of some sort of corruption scandal. And it's no surprise that he spent seven years there, only to die while in jail. He represented Youngstown, Ohio from 1985 to 2002. He was re-elected by the people, the voters who put him into office, and it was only being framed for corruption in 2002 that he would be expelled from Congress and spend the last seven years of his life in prison. These are little known facts that most people are entirely in the dark about, they're completely unaware of, and it's something that cannot be brought out into the light. Some of the most powerful words, and I'll read it just one last time, quote, we are reaping what we have sown. The results of our harvest is a painful bankruptcy and a foreclosure on American property, precious liberties, and a way of life. Few of our elected representatives in Washington, D.C. have dared to tell the truth. The federal United States is bankrupt. 
Our children will inherit this unpayable debt and the tyranny to enforce paying it, unquote. So it's words like that that will get you expelled from Congress. And we wonder why there's not any real representatives who ever run for office who, or whoever make it on the main debate stage. There's never any real representatives of the people's interest. Because when anybody ever stands up against the true heart of a problem, which is corrupt foreign banking cabal that is running everything in our lives, that is, owns our houses, that is stripping the wealth out of the United States, if anybody were to ever stand up to speak out against it, regardless if they had been duly elected by the people and the citizens in this great republic, there are other means for being able to silence dissenting voices. It reminds me of some of the words of John F. Kennedy that he said just secretly about secret societies and secret oaths and secret proceedings, but he said something. He said, no rumor is printed. No information is circulated about this. No rumor is printed. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. So also in his speech, he talked about covert means being used people. That is secret means. That it's hidden power structure is invisible to most people because they largely believe the lies they are told. And if you believe that that is somehow true, ask yourself, why was this man, after giving such a speech in Congress, removed? If it is not true, why such a big deal to go and sweep him away and silence his voice, to be able to prevent people and the citizens of the United States to understand just what is going on in our nation. But you know, it does not have to be this way. It does not have to be this way. I know that was kind of long, but I believe that this is something that needs to be preserved for the modern age, for modern history. And it's a shame that whenever you go to look up this video, it is scrubbed from the internet. And the only video that is put in place under the same name, because if you look up this speech, under the same name, James Trafficant Jr. addressing the House of Representatives March 17, 1993, you will be presented with an entirely different video of him speaking, which is not even on the same day because he's not wearing the same clothes that he was wearing when he actually gave this speech. So that's very interesting that the only thing presented, it comes from C-SPAN submitted by a private individual. And it's an entirely different subject, still covering things on the IRS, but an entirely different subject. Those kind of things are the reason that you really should be paying attention. That's why it's important. I thank you guys so much for joining us here at the Silver Report Uncut. If you like the content, be sure to subscribe, like the videos, share the videos, get the word out. I thank you so much for stopping by. As always, stay the key safe. key word we look for here is current. If that thing that you call currency does not generate current, it is not currency. Does paper, does paper generate currency? No. Is paper currency? No. Any form of paper? No. A certificate? No. A debt note? No. A United States note? No. A Federal Reserve note? No. A stock? You know the papers that you get, say you're a stockholder? A bond? All these things, stocks, bonds, 
certificates. Anything that says note, anything that says this is an instrument, um, what else do we have? I don't care what kind of note it is. If it's a U.S. note, Treasury note, Federal Reserve note, none of them our currency. What's very interesting is, and this is what we learned in our trade currency class, these Federal Reserve notes are transferable. They have no legitimacy or standing. That such persons would not be held uh, responsible or competent to set up trusts or to do international trade. That should not be complicated uh, for anyone to comprehend or understand that, even with children. However, because of the mental contamination of many adults, uh, what I just said being true as it be, would immediately start arguing well, light-skinned black people have a right to do their own stuff uh, and will argue all day long that that has Afrocentric, um, Ebonic legitimacy, and it doesn't. Um, and they have promoted that type of thinking among our people. Uh, so when you're looking at our trust, um, you're dealing with the principle of preserving what you would call heritable assets, uh, corporal and incorporal, etc. And this is, has much to do from a strategic point of view and from a strategic operational position as to why the hybrid alien colonializing uh, Europeans who've been operating at North America for the last couple hundred years have put so much dedicated effort into renaming the people of the land and renaming uh, territorial areas so that they could claim jurisdictional operations or authority in matters that have nothing whatsoever by right or inheritance to do with them whatsoever. Or something. The fact that they say Federal Reserve note tells you that they belong to and they are the property of <coughs> anytime you see the word bank, there's a con game going on. Don't trust that word. I don't care what name precedes it or follows it. There's a con game going on Whenever you see the word bank, you may as well just figure that you're being conned. We're not going to talk about how you're being conned tonight, but and we talk about that in trade and currency class. Now, the Federal Reserve Bank is the is the owner <coughs> of these Federal Reserve notes that you carry around and conduct trade with. 
Why is it that you're able to use them? Pull out a Federal Reserve note. We have to do this for all you people who have not had trade currency class. Pull out a one dollar bill for those of you who have it. You don't have one share with you. <laughs> Pull it out. Let's take a look at it. These things you have to see, you have to see for yourself because we've covered this. For those of you who haven't had trade currency class, I have to show it to you so we can move forward. You understand what we're talking about. Everybody see that? See two signatures up there. We talked about this a little in our who's who class. You see the two signatures on the front? Down at the bottom. You see Mary Ellen Withrow, right? And you see Ron Rubin, right? Who is it? Lawrence Summers? No. Yeah, Robert Summers. Oh, I have Robert. Somebody has Summers? Yeah. You have Summers? That, that must be a new bill because he just um, appointed last year when Ruben resigned. It's a new one. It's a new one. Okay. So now, look on the back. You see two seals on the back? Yeah. So what do you have in that document? A contract. That document is a contract. It's signed and sealed. It's a contract. It's signed and sealed. Got it? Yeah. Two seals up there. Huh? What two seals do you see on that document? You have the U.S. and the U.S.A. But the U.S. is signing for somebody. They're representing, they're sitting in the seat for somebody which gives them the authority to sign that contract. You already know the answer. I heard somebody say it. The Lord's. Okay? So this is a lawful contract that they have with the USA. Like that. And their contract is signed and sealed. It's valid. So for, for any of those Organizations out there that are telling you the dead notes and these Federal Reserve notes are worthless and this and that and whatever, don't listen to them. This is a valid contract for the world to see. Now, on the front, you've got your two signatures. Mary Ellen Withrow signed for who? Yes, she did. She's, she's the United States. Mary Ellen Withrow is the treasurer of the United States. She is elected. She's not appointed. She is elected and she signed that contract for the United States. Ron Rubin, or Lawrence Summers, if you have him, he was, you know, Ron Rubin resigned. Lawrence Summers is the new Secretary of the Treasury. The Treasury of the United States of America. Whereas Mary Ellen Withrow was elected by you at the Democratic National Convention. Okay? And she's signing for the Moors. See, for a lot of individuals, you've never been told to question the narrative. The present Secretary of Treasurer, Stephen Mewchin. No one ever told you to question the narrative of Donald J. Trump. No one never told you to question the narrative of Barack Hussein Obama. No one never told you to question the narrative of Bill Clinton. 
No one ever told you to question the narrative of George Bush Jr. No one ever told you to question the narrative of George Bush Sr. Now, you were taught in the public school system that George Washington was the first president. No one ever told you to question the narrative. These were the same people that taught you that all men are created equal. You were never taught to question the narrative. A lot of you are waiting for government to give you a stimulus. You were never told to question the narrative. A lot of you are trying to figure out where is your next level of income is going to come from because you were never told to question the narrative a lot of you are told that black lives matter you were never told to question the narrative keep listening so you have people of Morris descent that they allowed the European to the hybrid European to rename them engines and Negroes and black people and people of color, not knowing that by law, it immediately made them non-heritable. Also what it did, it removed the capacity for them to use treaties and constitutions for their secured protections that already existed before their birth. Except man, for this is the bullshit they be talking. Every day, man, it's like these motherfuckers is just like professional liars, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> wow. Listen. Bin Laden didn't blow up the projects. It was your nigga. Tell the truth, nigga. Push knock down the tower. Tell the truth, nigga. Push knock down the tower. Tell the truth, nigga. Bin Laden didn't blow up the projects. It was your nigga. No allegiance, nigga, fuck the president's speeches I'm baptized by America and covered in leeches The dirty water that bleaches your soul and your facial features Drowning you in propaganda that they spit through the speakers And if you speak about the evil that the government does The Patriot Act to track you to the type of your blood They try to frame you and say you was trying to sell drugs And throw a federal indictment on niggas to show you love This shit is run by fake Christians, fake politicians Look at their mansions and look at the conditions you live in All they talk about is terrorism on television Television. They tell you to listen, but they don't really tell you their mission. They funded Al Qaeda, and now they blame the Muslim religion. Even though Bin Laden was a CIA tactician, they gave him billions of dollars, and they funded his purpose. Fahrenheit 9/11, that's just scratching the surface. Bin Laden didn't blow up the projects. It was your nigga. Tell the truth, nigga. Push knock down the tower. Tell the truth, nigga. Push knock down the tower. Tell the truth, nigga. Bin Laden didn't blow up the projects. It was your Still fight for Saddam, 
but that's bullshit I show you why it's totally wrong Cause if another country invaded the hood tonight It'd be warfare through Harlem and Washington Heights I wouldn't be fighting for Bush or white America's dream I'd be fighting for my people's survival and self-esteem I wouldn't fight for racist churches from the south, my nigga I'd be fighting to keep the occupation out, my nigga You ever clock someone who talk shit for look at you wrong? Imagine if they shot at you and was raping your moms And of course Saddam Hussein had chemical weapons We sold them that shit after Ronald Reagan's election Mercenary contractors fighting a new era Corporate military banking off the war on terror They controlling the ghetto with the fear of attack Trying to distract the fact that they engineering the crack So I'm strapped like Lee Malvo holding a sniper rifle These bullets will touch your kids And I don't mean like Michael Your body be sent to the morgue Stripped down and recycled I fire on house stickers that support you and like you Cause innocent people get murdered in the struggle daily And poor people never get shit and struggle daily This ain't no alien conspiracy theory This shit is real Written on a dollar underneath the Masonic seal Y'all don't rap for dead presidents I'd rather see the president dead It's never been said but I said precedence Bin Laden blow up the projects It was your nigga Tell the truth nigga Push knock down the tower Tell the truth nigga Push knock down the tower Tell the truth nigga Bin Laden blow up the projects It was your nigga Tell the truth City nigga As treasurer of the United States, they are two separate and distinct things. Two separate and distinct entities, two separate and distinct offices. Well, one is an office and one is a department, actually. This is a department. Lawrence Summers and Ron Rubin signed for the Treasury Department over here. Y'all see that? You have to, anybody have any questions about that? Y'all have to be clear about that before we can move on, all right? So. What happens, okay, what happens when you use a Federal Reserve note? Most people have been in the habit of taking Federal Reserve notes to your average everyday Joe Blow bank. Commerce, Mellon, PNC, First Union, Sovereign. We see core states is gone. We don't have them anymore. Whatever bank you name, first of all, they're conning you. But the banks are in the business because you don't know any better. So they're the middlemen, and they're in the middle of doing what? They're not making any money. Well, well, no, they're not really stealing. Well, we're going to get into the next question, what is money, and then you'll see why that's not true. They're not, no, they're not. No bank other than the Federal Reserve Bank deals in currency, not one. Not one. They trade in these things right here. Paper. They are paper traders. The functional reasoning of branding, that our people are well aware of branding, but they seem to have limited comprehension that these are legal instruments for denationalizing and disinheriting people. They're not just what you would call informational um, maladies or informational corruptions, they are, they are, their major function is to create what you would call platform by disinheritance. And, and from a, a law position, such persons being stateless would also be a person held as civil liberal mortuus. So whoever would claim authority or lay claim to authority in the matter 
such persons, whether they were physically dead or whether they were civilly dead, their estates by the nature of operations would go into probate. And logically, not lawfully, not morally, not ethically, logically, the corporate operators would claim government position and by probate claim the estate and escheat the estates, which is exactly what they have been doing. On April 4th, 1985. Okay, so almost approximately, almost a year to the date. And all I'm saying is pay attention. If you listen long enough, you just might learn something. Who are we talking about? We're talking about a one Roscoe L. Edgar Jr., the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Effective means not only did we do the job, but did we do it well, seeing to it that the taxpayer was treated fairly. Roscoe L. Egger we could do more audits than anybody ever did before and set some kind of record. But the question is, have we lived up to our obligation to the public to be effective? Effective means not only did we do the job, but did we do it well, seeing to it that the taxpayer was treated fairly? By Robert A. Mammoth Roscoe L. Egger. If you think tax instructions can be confusing try locating a room at 1111 Constitution Avenue, NW Washington D.C. At that appropriately digitalized address sprawls the national headquarters of the United States Internal Revenue Service, an entire city block's worth of chiseled stone that, with its purposeless columns, confounding corridors, and tedious fenestration, seems to be the architectural equivalent of filling out a Form 1040. Inside, behind a modest desk on the third floor, sits one of the more awesome presences in the Capitol, you know, what's his name, the head of the IRS. Although his signature has adorned the front page of tax instruction booklets for the past three years, just below the pitch for voluntary contributions to help defray the national debt, few citizens have the remotest idea who he is or where he came from. Then again, it may be that few want to. As the saying goes, what you don't know can't hurt you. Article continues after video. Featured video. But if he doesn't turn heads with the regularity of, say, Paul Newman, the atmosphere can be equally charged when his identity is made known to others, inevitably triggering a kind of nervous laughter. He takes it all in stride. At most, it provides me with a little bit of enjoyment from time to time, he acknowledges. But it does tend to remind you that people look upon the individuals of the IRS as identified with tax collection. That incontrovertible fact notwithstanding, Roscoe L. Egger Jr. does not come across in person as the national ogre. For one thing, he strikes a tidy, slight figure whose unprepossessing demeanor exudes only the best of will. For another, neither he nor his 90,000 or so subordinates is officially out to get anybody, provided, of course, that the individual or business in question has dutifully filed, accurately accounted for, and timely parted with his, her, or its annual tithe. As it happens, that is an increasingly significant proviso, perhaps more than any recent tax commissioner. The 63-year-old Egger is bent not so much on reinterpreting statutes as on bringing shirkers to task and doing it equitably. Of course, as Egger appreciates, no one likes to pay taxes. They never have throughout all of history. And while they do it willingly, that is most of them, I suppose it is never pleasant to part with what you've worked for and earned. Pleasant or not, an additional 4,800 citizens are targeted to be sharing that experience this year. 
In one of his most controversial acts to date, Egger has authorized the IRS to obtain mailing lists of high-income individuals from private vendors, in an effort to track down tax evaders. To some, the move smacks of invasion of privacy, but Egger strongly disagrees. The New York Times and others ran articles indicating there's something sinister about what we're doing here. Good heavens, all we're doing is something we could do ourselves, except we can buy it cheaper on the commercial market. The compilations are done from telephone books, auto registration lists, city directories, and various other public sources. It's really a research effort. The information we get has to do with the name and address, the number of people in the household, the age of the head of the household, estimated income level, and one or two other minor things. Dot, dot. Our purpose is not to identify returns for examination. Dot, dot. But merely to identify possible individuals who should have filed a tax return and did not. It's strictly a non-filer program, nothing more. As for those who file inaccurate returns, Egger is content to go after them with the traditional weapon of the audit. He is pleased to report that since his appointment in 1981, IRS examiners have slashed the no-change rate, the proportion of audited returns that are ultimately accepted as originally filed, nearly in half, from about 43% to a current 22%. In other words, we're doing a better job of selecting returns, Egger concludes, and we'll keep right on bringing that percentage down. Also down during Egger's tenure has been the raw number of returns selected for examination, currently one. 6 million a year. We could do more audits than anybody ever did before and set some kind of record, notes the commissioner. But the question is, have we lived up to our obligation to the public to be effective? Effective means not only did we do the job, but did we do it well, seeing to it that the taxpayer was treated fairly? In selecting returns for audit, the agency's 28,000-person examination division relies heavily on what Egger calls very sophisticated formulas for scoring certain line items from each return. When the result is abnormal, the return is subject to the dreaded examination, and the unlucky taxpayer is advised to, as Egger says, put your things together, and we'll talk about it. To most citizens such an invitation is about as welcome as a course of periodontal surgery. If it is any consolation, Egger himself has been on the receiving end of these invitations with a regularity that would be the despair of most others. Few people in the country have had as many examinations as I have, certainly in the last several years, he reflects with equanimity, and, although he admits to having been apprehensive the first time, he has stood up well under his pay-setting ordeal. I have not had any difficult experiences. Now for the bad news, the commissioner thinks more returns should be examined. The purpose of a tax audit, he points out, is not just to catch somebody who may have understated his income, but to monitor the system. It is to see how different features of the law play out in their applications. When we capture that kind of information, we then make recommendations through the Treasury to Congress to simplify or eliminate some of the problems we find. So it is important to conduct audits on returns even though there is no reason to believe that there is anything untoward about them. Lest anyone figure the odds may be changing in his or her favor, however, Egger adds that we still target our examinations to those returns where we believe there is a high likelihood of some kind of adjustment. The targeting of examinations has, in fact, been a touchy subject over the years. One suspicion that has made some taxpayers uneasy is that the IRS goes after prominent or rich people, using them as examples for the rest of the flock. Egger insists there is no truth to the allegations. We do not make return selections on that basis. But if we read in the newspaper where somebody has embezzled a lot of money, or if other information that is out of the ordinary comes to the attention of our field people, the district office might be prompted to pull that return and have a look at it. Egger also downplays the role of the IRS's infamous under-the-table informer system. People write or call us about taxpayers and say you ought to look at this individual return. We don't always follow up on those because we recognize that people do this out of anger or resentment. Policy aside, the truth is that pulling a return is no simple matter these days. With some 170 million tax returns coming in each year, not to mention 900 million information forms, 
It takes six weeks simply to retrieve one from the record storage center in Kansas City, Missouri. That situation should change by the end of the decade. However, when the IRS plans to be storing tax information on immensely capacious, ultra-high-speed laser discs, our hope is that we'll be able to retrieve or return electronically from anywhere in the country in a matter of seconds, says Egger. This is not Buck Rogers, it's known technology. It's here. That unbearably combination, high technology plus a determined administrator, is bound to make habitually shortcutting taxpayers think twice in the future. But don't count on a federal tax amnesty. Egger is against the idea, despite the success of recent state amnesties. My feeling is, once you start that kind of thing, you have to keep it up. People begin thinking that, if they wait long enough, soon there will be another amnesty. It rewards the evasion of tax liability in a fashion I just don't subscribe to. On the other hand, the IRS has long maintained an unstated policy that allows penitent tax cheats to pay up with little fear of prosecution. Egger himself acknowledges, if somebody got a pang of conscience and came forward and said, I really shouldn't have done that, certainly we would give that factor a great deal of weight in consideration of whether to proceed with criminal action. Egger is far less sympathetic toward tax shelter packagers who knowingly promise more than they can legally deliver. Although he has spent a lifetime in accounting and law, interrupting a partnership at Price Waterhouse to accept the Reagan appointment, he has been shocked by some of the sheltering setups he has seen as commissioner. They are a blemish on the whole system, he declares. What especially riles him is that the victims are often people with relatively modest incomes, in the $25,000 to $45,000 range. The really high-income people, particularly those who are active in the business world, tend to be quite cautious about the shelters they choose to invest in. Most of them are interested in something that's a good investment they aren't so quick to buy merely because it is going to postpone their taxes this year. In contrast, middle-income people have proven to be fairly easy marks for shady shelter promoters. That's disturbing, because in those brackets it creates a severe financial problem when they discover that the schemes won't work and they have to pay the back taxes plus interest and penalties. As a consequence, Egger has broken with tradition and begun actively seeking injunctions against sellers of abusive tax shelters. We are trying to identify them on the front end, so people can be forewarned that these schemes are not what they purport to be. We can stop the promoters before they involve too many people. As of February, the Department of Justice attorneys had obtained half a dozen injunctions on behalf of the IRS, with many, many more in the pipeline, according to Egger, all of which has been a lesson for the commissioner. I don't think I really appreciated the impact that such entities as tax shelters have on the system until I got here, he admits, and I didn't realize the tremendous amount of resources we have to use to deal with these things. On the other hand, he does not favor any wholesale changes in the system, such as adoption of a so-called flat tax, which would eliminate all deductions in favor of a lower universal rate. We believe that such a tax would probably bear more heavily on middle-income groups and be quite a boon to the very high and very low-income earners. I suggest that that runs counter to the political philosophy that has surrounded the development of our tax system for a long, long time. He has even stronger views on the subject of cash-based accounting, whereby to jockey tax obligations companies pay taxes on income when it is actually received, rather than when it is recorded. When I got here, and looked at the long list of cases that were in her seeking that kind of change, I realized all of a sudden that here was a significant and material distortion of income. I know good accounting when I see it and I can't see any public purpose being served by permitting the cash method, which really isn't a method at all but really a kind of convention. Indeed, there is probably nothing more taxing to the commissioner's patience than the sight of people steering around the tax code, even if it is tolerable within the letter of the law. If Egger comes back in 1985, an event dependent on the presidential election, a repeat invitation, and his own inclination to accept, both businesses and individuals can look for loopholes to grow tighter still. My experience as a professional was not oriented to gimmickry, declares Egger. I feel strongly about that.
I found that there are many legitimate areas of tax planning that will minimize the impact of taxes on certain transactions and business activities, and that's where the value of the profession lies. I don't think it lies in trying to invent some cute gimmick that clearly circumvents the intent of the law. That never was my intent in practice, and I don't think it belongs in our society. I really don't. April Now, that was published April 1st, 1984. The next publication you're going to hear is what was done almost a year afterwards. Let me give you the score. Why is this important? You're now actually listening to the initial architectural work that became what is now known as current expected credit losses. This is the birthplace, the foundation these are some of the architectural proponents of what is now called current expected credit losses. This is why I stress the importance of accounting. This is why I stress the, the, the way the structure is set up. You're supposed to substantiate your transactions first. You heard directly from the, in, the Internal Revenue Services Commissioner in 1984 that cash, the cash method of accounting was never part of the initial proponent is not a gap item keep listening because if you listen long enough you will learn something April 1st 1984 to all district directors April 4th 1985 on March 5, 1985, a charge of tax evasion was filed in U.S. District Court in Indianapolis, Indiana by U.S. Attorney George Duncan. The charges were dismissed. The defense attorney Lowell B. Kraft of Huntsville, Alabama presented irrefutable evidence that the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was never properly ratified. This amendment which established the income tax, was signed into law despite serious defects. In reality only two states ratified the amendment and ratification requires 36 states to be valid. The effect of this is such that every tax paid into the Treasury since 1913, is due and refundable to every citizen and business. The official position of the service is, as it has always been, to aid and assist the citizens of the United States. We will not publish or advertise this finding as a total immediate refund would cause a serious drain on the resources of the Treasury. For those citizens that become aware of this finding and apply for a total refund to expedite their refund documents as quickly and as quietly as possible. Advise each of your mangers that they are not to discuss this situation with anyone. There will be no written communications and you are to destroy this memorandum. The Secretary of the Treasury assures me that there will be no reduction in the workforce as this refunding activity will take a minimum of five years to complete. Further directions will be forwarded as the need arises. Signed. Roscoe L. Egger Jr. Commission of Internal Revenue. Now. The memorandum, the infamous memorandum that circulated through the Internal Revenue Department, uh, which was dated on April 4th, 1985, that talks about an event on March 5th, 1985, dealing with a U.S. Attorney General, a U.S. Attorney, George Duncan, excuse me, um, 
where we had someone who actually was um, charged with tax evasion where these charges were dismissed. The defense attorney Lee Well Beechcraft of Huntsville, Alabama presented irrefutable evidence that the 16th Amendment to the United States Constitution was never properly ratified. And the amendment which established the income tax was signed into law despite serious defects. In reality, only two states ratified the amendment and ratification requires 36 states in order to be valid. See, the effect of this is such that every tax paid into the Treasury since 1913 is due and refundable to every citizen and business. I had a question. Why would creditors actually repurchase debt? It's because the 16th Amendment was never properly ratified. It is because, like my grandmother said, once you tell a lie, you have to keep telling a lie. It is because you don't understand what currency really is and you're confused about taxes. Property can't own property. And you have learned in civics that if you don't have a nationality, you're trying to assert rights under treaty and trust becomes something little different keep listening because if you listen long enough you'll learn something not an idea they've been doing it for decades <sighs> this it, it's really it's not complex at all it's just that our people have been trained that human beings are colors and not nationalities and they've been trained by sellouts among themselves to enforce that as a pedigree reality when they know damn well it's a fraud. Are there any questions? Uh, yeah, I don't know who. <laughs> I don't know who I just did. <laughs> but They are paper traders. They're in the business of trading and exchanging paper. That's all they do. Promissory notes and debt notes, that's what they're in the business to do. Don't ever be misled about who they are. <coughs> banks, all banks. Now, the Federal Reserve Bank is a little bit different because it's chartered by the United States, by Congress. Chartered by Congress. So now, if you want to exchange a Federal Reserve note for another Federal Reserve note, you can go to your average Joe Blow bank, right? But if you want to exchange a Federal Reserve note for currency, they can't do that. They can't help you. They're not in the business to do that. They want to, they'll tell you, well, we can't do that. But you ask them, well, where do I go? They are not going to be able to tell you. They don't know. They know. The average teller doesn't know. I would say your tellers know. Even your branch managers don't know. But banking executives know. The ones who sit upstairs, you never see them downstairs and talk to them. But I read that they make the money. Who makes money? Does anybody have the Constitution in here? Oh. Does anybody have a law? Could you look in the back of the um, law dictionary? And um, I forgot which section it is. It talks about, I want to say Article 4. Is it that talks about coining money? 
Find the one that talks about coining money so we can answer your question. The Federal Reserve Bank does not make money. They don't, they don't, no. Welcome to another webinar. This is a good one with my good buddy, Mr. J.D. Frost, on how to put $25,000, man, back in your pocket <laughs> in the next six weeks. Dude, you said you said that, and I'm like, I'm in. I'm in, $25,000, yeah, man. Dude, which wow. is amazing, right? So for those that yeah. don't know J.D., um, J.D. is a very good friend of mine. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Croft. And JD Frost and Company. Uh, they are the headline sponsors of 8% 2020, which is amazing. And um, appreciate everybody okay. being here. Uh, we are recording this, and we promise that will not be the last technical difficulty because neither one of us are geniuses, okay, when it comes to that. Now, JD is <laughs> when it comes to money, though, all right? He's a genius when it comes to money. We met at 10x3 in Miami 